This podcast is recorded in front of an unwitting audience. This is True Crime Kent. Hello? Yeah, no. Don't lose that drain plug. The new filter's over there in that box. Hey, hey true crime. Uh, is it a bad time? Was was thinking of maybe recording a, an episode? Trying to change the oil in our truck here out in the garage. Op. Can can this wait? Yeah, sure. Are you going to set the phone down? I, I'll just wait right here. No, I meant like hang up and call back later like a normal person, but... Not for you to just... No, I, I won't say a word. Do what you need to do. You can even sit the phone down. Just put me on speaker before you do. Not a hell with it. Hey, can you finish this? He's not going to let me off the phone until he gets an episode out of me. You ready yet? Yeah, I, I guess I'm ready. Uh, yeah. What the, what story did you have in mind for, uh, for us to, to talk about today? I didn't. I didn't have anything in mind. I was trying to change the damn oil. Never mind. Don't worry about it. Let me. Th- let me think. Um, move that welder if you need more room. Yet welder. Welder Marv Hemeyer, Killdozer. Killdozer. There it is. We're gonna. We're gonna go to Granby, Colorado today, up. We're gonna meet up with a man named Marv in his warehouse and see what he's up to. He was one of the best damn welders in the state of Colorado, according to those that knew him. Ooh, how, how is this true crime related? Did he commit, like, horrible crimes with a lot of, like, well-placed beads of hot steel? Uh, in a way. In a way, Op. This story is rather simple but intense and ends in a trail of absolute destruction, chaos, and gunfire. Saddle up. We're eventually going to join Marv in the cockpit of the monstrosity that he created under the nose of the very community he would eventually destroy with it. A black behemoth that he created with stacks and stacks of metal, concrete, sweat, and blood. A vehicle so gnarly that it looked as if it had chewed its way out of the pits of hell and so impenetrable that the police were calling for the National Guard to help stop it. We're riding shotgun in the motherfucking killdozer. Has initiated. All right, Op. So usually when we do an episode, we go into how whatever we're covering relates to our life, yada, yada, yada. But we've got a lot of ground to cover here today and little time to do it. So we're going to go ahead and jump in because I also somehow managed to score an interview with uh, a man named Patrick Brower, an awesome dude that, that wrote the book on this case called Killdozer. And he was actually uh, one of the people on... Old Marv Hemeyer's hit list and his his business was also destroyed. So, so Patrick came face to face within foot of the dozer in the in the midst of its rampage, and we're going to hear from him a little bit throughout this throughout this episode. So we're just going to get right into it. How's that sound? Do you want me to call you back? I I mean I figure I feel so bad. You no, I mean no. It's it was it, it was worth interrupting me while I'm trying to change the oil in my truck. Why don't we just go ahead and do this? <laughs> I I was gonna say the same thing. I was just I was I was baiting you a little bit to see where your priorities lie. Um, so sorry. I'm just really sorry to hear 
that the truck and your oil needs to be changed. But uh, other than that, let's just do this thing. Well, Marvin Hemeyer was born on October 28th, 1951 in Castlewood, South Dakota. Now, there's not a lot of information about his childhood, his upbringing. We do know he was a farm boy, uh, but uh, the time between his birth and around the age of, of 23 here is is a mystery as far as as far as I can tell. Do you think it's a mystery because it's just undocumented or like do you think he's actually a mysterious character? I think uh, I think that it, it was rather uneventful and probably boring. Okay. Marv himself is is kind of a kind of a bland a bland taste. Um, whenever you start really getting into him, honestly. Well, I'm, I'm excited to hear about that. Oh, yeah, but this is a fun story. This is a fun story. Now, I usually use a website called newspapers.com uh, to to do a lot of the research for these cases. And oftentimes, you know, because we're covering such rough individuals, uh, Ken Rex McElroy, Carl Tanzler, John Wayne Bobbitt, you know, you type in their names and you get just pages and pages and pages and pages of, of newspaper articles, and it's just a, an abundance of information. But unfortunately, when you type in Marvin Hemeyer's name and newspapers.com, you get one hit and one hit alone. <laughs> Darn it. And that was that <laughs> on October 31st of 1974 in the 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 Sioux County Index – Mr. Marvin Hemeyer of Clear Lake, South Dakota, was the weekend visitor of Mr. and Mrs. Lauren Bama. So that's fucking exciting. That's good stuff. Oh, Bama. Yeah. So he must have been really he, he doesn't have a criminal a criminal history of any kind that I can that I can dig up and that kind of stuff is usually on newspapers.com all the way back to the late 1800s, speeding tickets, whatever. It usually pops up. You can find just about any dirt on anybody on that. Marvin Hemeyer, though, clean as a whistle, aside from this visit with Mr. and Mrs. Lauren Bama. So that's fun. That's mm. a lot of fun. Yeah, it sounds I It also fun. Yeah, it also mentions in that article that he was living in Clear Lake, South Dakota at the time when he was 23 years old. So up until from birth to 23, man, I got nothing. I got nothing. Sort of like you say, the mystery sounds like very mysterious. Probably was uh, – I would think he's probably a spy, something like that. Now, he did – at some point in his, in his late teens, early 20s, he joined the Air Force – and it seems like he was successful in the Air Force. And, and during that time, he discovers – old Marv discovers that he is one hell of a welder. So hmm. he finds his uh, passion, if you will. Okay. He gets out of the Air Force. He, he's stationed in Colorado, decides he likes Colorado, and decides that, uh, you know, when he gets out of the Air Force, he's going he's gonna to buy him a little piece of property up there. And that's when he, he gets out, and he eventually moves to Grand Lake, Colorado, uh, which is about 16 miles from Granby. And that was in 1991 he moved there. So if he was born in 51, he moved. So he was 40 years old when he moves, finally moves to Grand Lake, Colorado, 16 miles from Granby, the town that he will eventually bring to its knees. Okay, let me piece together a couple things here. So Granby, Colorado, did you say 1991? 1991. Okay. Okay, hold on. I'm. 
Okay, I lived in Colorado at one point. Okay. Um, but more was it near Aspen? No, I lived in uh, Denver. It's a, it's a city. Denver. Denver. It's in, that sounds like a German city. Yeah, I think it. I think it hails back to German roots. Um, but more importantly, actually, than me living in Denver, 1991, there was a 1991 penny. That sold at an auction oh, Jesus Christ. for $1,116.25. It was great. MS68 plus RD. Yeah. Crazy, huh? Yeah. That's so much fun. So he's living in Granby, uh, and he buys this property, uh, and... Let's not even go into, like, the, 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 the feel of Granby. Let's let... Let's let Mr. Patrick Brower do it. Yeah. Yum. And Grand Lake is where he lived at, correct? Yeah, he lived in Grand Lake, but his muffler shop was in Granby. Right, right. And Granby itself, there's not like... Uh, I've seen aerial photos and photographs, but in terms of like... Say, say, I, wanted, say I lived in Granby and I wanted to go out to grab a bite to eat. Would I find, you know, Applebee's or Ruby Tuesday or Red Lobster or anything? Yeah, there's, there's no chain stores here. Okay. The closest you'd get to that would be that the hardware store is a is a Hayes affiliate hardware store. But other than that, no, there's no other uh, franchises or affiliates like that in Granby, nor really hardly in the whole county. Okay. Uh, franchises have struggled here. So, is it kind of secluded in a way? Like, is yes, Grand County. Itself is a county of about 15,000 people. It's 100 miles long, 50 miles wide. So uh, and it's located in a little pocket of the Continental Divide. Okay, okay. So it's, you know, on three sides, it's pretty much surrounded by the Continental Divide. And although it's only, uh, you know, as a crow flies, about 70 miles from Denver, it might as well be 500 miles from Denver. There's a huge pass you got to go over to get here. Uh, you know, it's always 20 degrees colder here than it is in Denver. Um, this is one of the coldest places in the United States. Uh, Fraser, Colorado, which is just another 20 miles away, has had a fight with uh, International Falls, Minnesota, over who can claim the rubric as the icebox of the nation. So it's a cold place, long winters, uh, severe weather. All right. Well, Granby sounds like a... Like a fan pa- fantastic place to, to raise a family and pick up a newspaper in your robe and wave at the neighbor and just do all kinds of Caucasian things. Uh, perfect for Caucasian activities. That's what it sounds like to me. Sounds about white. So uh, Mr. Hemeyer, he, he moves there. He loves snowboarding. Or not snowboarding. That's a completely different <laughs> smart, sport. I'm sorry. He's, I'm on like five different medications right now. I'm out of my mind. He loves snowbo- snowmobiling. He snowmobiling. loves motorboating his wife. <laughs> he loves that probably. Actually, he was never married, never had kids. Mm, okay. But uh, Loves motorboating other people's kids. What wives. Marv, well, wives. We, now, we don't need to spread a rumor that Marv was – Marv was a lot of things, but he was not, to our knowledge – a pedophile at any point ever. Okay. Maybe. Okay. So. All right. I'll give you that. So he, he loves, he loves snowmobiling 
and he pretty much lives to do snowmobile-ing. I believe that's the action to past s- verb. Yes, snowmobile to snow to snowmobile. Mm-hmm. That's his. That's his passion. That's what. That's what he's working towards. He just wants to live a life of snow snowbiling. Snowmobile, I believe, is the action. Part, oh, okay. Action okay. past participle for yes, right. Now I'm I'm from Kentucky, and I've never I've never even seen a snowmobile in my entire life. Not once have I ever even I've never even seen one. We don't get enough snow here. You know, it snows here during the winters, but I've. Nobody's ever had a snowmobile that I'm aware of. We did have a three-wheeler while I was growing up that was just ideal for uh, popping wheelies and turning anybody who dared mount it into a quadriplegic. Okay. Because that was probably the most dangerous death machine. The three-wheeler, the Honda three-wheeler, was uh, an instrument of death. Yeah. Well, you know, the snowmobile is not too far off. Uh, Picture this, if you will. Bust off all of the parts of a of a Sherman tank except for one tread, put a put a seat from a motorcycle on top of the tread, and then two skis in front of the tread and give yourself some handlebars. That's basically a snowmobile. That's a okay. Okay. And and are they about the size of a four wheeler? Yeah. Yeah. Longer, thinner. But yes. Okay. Cause I like I said, we grew up on four wheelers and dirt bikes and, and three wheelers, but but we just no, winter sports aren't a big thing in Kentucky. Uh, usually in Kentucky, uh, when winter comes around, that's when everyone retreats to their sheds and just spends their time uh, making meth. So, what is a four wheeler? A four wheeler is a a a mobile with four wheels. Four wheels. It's a four mobile. It's a four mobile. Is it like a four wheeler? What was I saying? You said four-wheeler. I thought maybe it was similar to a four-wheeler. Okay. 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 It, it's a mobile vehicle with four wheels. Got a lot of will. Fucking up. So Marv is, Marv is he's snowmobiling. Uh, he, he loves snowmobiling and all the snowbiling. And he's a man's man. He likes working on cars, you know, probably watching the news and talking about the game on – Friday, and he had a, a a beautiful maroon 1968 Chevy Nova with oh, flame pinstripes. Big Mac. What's that? Hot apple pie, Big Mac. Hot, hot apple pies and Big Macs. Well, uh, oh, no. there's not any restaurants in Granby, but... I was just telling you that 1968 was when the hot apple pie and the Big Mac were were released to the humans. Oh, I thought you were adding to the masculine stuff that Marvin Heemeyer was in, which was probably also Apple Pies and Big Macs. In 1968, um, he very well probably did. He was like, I'm going to drive my maroon Chevy Nova for this new thing, newfangled hot apple pie Big Macs. Now, we're still in 1991 right now. He just had a 68 Chevy Nova. Well, I guess he could still get a hot apple pie and a Big Mac in 91, too. Yes. But I, I, I've seen a picture of this car. Man, it was beautiful. So we're both right. It was a beautiful car. Just an old muscle car. You know, this is just a man's man, right? Old Marvin Heemeyer. Now, in uh, in the sometime in the mid-90s, he starts dating uh, a young lady named Trisha, Trisha McDonald. And uh, 
You just, Speaking of McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. Do you see the irony there? <laughs> that was like, I didn't even see yeah. that coming. Whoosh. <laughs> Suddenly it's like, whatever that's called. She is of no relation to Ronald that I could find, that I looked okay. extensively. Is she related to the actual restaurant? Um, I, I, not that not that I could dig up. Okay, I tried to dig up a lot of dirt. I tried as much as I could to dig up the worst information about this young lady who did nothing to nobody, and I couldn't find nothing on her. So, so she seems clean. Okay, all right. We'll we'll take that at face value. Now there is a a documentary on Netflix called Tread, and it's about this case, and it's really well done. I have to give it props. Well made. Uh, I talked to Patrick Brower, who is actually in it for a long. He, he's in it a lot. And uh, he agrees. You know, a lot of times documentaries kind of have an angle. Uh, they'll, they'll either take the person that perpetrated the crime and they'll completely villainize them or take their side. This this documentary does a good job. I feel, and Patrick said he felt, uh, at at remaining unbiased. Uh, it's a really good documentary. I recommend anybody that, that likes this episode to go and check it out. So in this documentary that you speak of, then – what you're saying is the documentarians in this case did not try to give human-like traits to a whole town called Granby and call it so vile and racist because of its hundred-year past of burning one person on top of a schoolhouse. <laughs> so we were trying to. No, me. this wasn't. This wasn't like that documentary for Ken McElroy. Uh, what was that <laughs> called? That documentary. Uh, I think it was called Skidmore. Yeah. Now, this is a well-made documentary. Okay. And I'm really in, I'd like to have seen the budget for this thing because they almost recreate the uh, the rampage. And I don't know what kind of budget a documentary gets, but imagine how much money it would have been to to do what – to recreate what Marv here eventually does. Do they, like, rebuild – they, like, make a tiny town and all that and, like, drive a tank through it? They rebuild the dozer – they rebuild it, and then they level buildings in the documentary. Wow! They run over vehicles. I don't know. I don't know of a documentary that must have had of any other documentary that had the budget that this one must have had. That seems excessive, but also cool. I I should watch this. Oh, it was a great documentary. It's fantastic. Uh, the reason I bring it up is because Trisha McDonald is in there talking about. You know, she meets Marv at this pub. They fall in love. She had other kids. She had just been divorced, and she goes into how Marv was the first. The first man that she had been intimate with after her husband. I don't know if her husband had passed away or they had gotten a divorce. It doesn't go into it. It doesn't elaborate. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, Marv never had any kids, never was married prior. Marv is Trish's rebound, right? Mm. So he was a good welder, though, right? Oh, he was the best. And he made probably the best tank ever, right? Oh, for sure. It yeah, this thing could have been used on the front lines. By by American military, <laughs> yeah. I'll bet you he wished he had daughters at some point. And at some point while he was welding, either the tank or whatever else he welds around his house, maybe barbecue, he might have said something like, tank heaven for little grills. In 1992, he, he bought the property in Granby that would eventually become his muffler shop. At an FDIC public auction in Denver, and he, he gave $42,000 for it. It had been foreclosed on, and it came with two acres and a 3,000-square-foot warehouse. Oh, wow. So that's in 92. He, he comes across this good deal for a property in Granby. Now, he had been in a bidding war with uh, another man at that auction named Cody Dochiff, who was there with 
his friend Gus Harris, who was providing the money for Cody. And Cody ran the cement plant, the concrete plant, uh, right next to this property. And he was hoping Cody was hoping he could snag it so he could build on to his concrete plant. But he didn't bring enough money, and Marv beats him kind of fair and square at the auction, you know. Yeah, I know how that feels. I have five acres, and I'm constantly staring at the five-acre properties on both sides of me, just chomping at the bit, waiting for one of them to want to sell, because I would love to own all of their property, too. Why? Um, Because I board horses sometimes, or sometimes I just like to run around crying. I just need a lot of space. That just must be something that's ingrained in, in Caucasian people, right? Just soak up, suck up all the property. That you yeah, <laughs> I think so. Well, technically, I'm not quite sure it's even assigned to a certain race because I believe the Indians kind of kicked each other's butts around and kind of took their property. And Yeah, we don't talk about that much, do we? That's something we don't go into. How the, how the Indians were doing everything that we did to them, they were doing to each other long before we got here. Yeah. I, I remember not too long ago there was a guy that uh, – this he was approached by a South American gentleman and he's like, why do you think you sh- we should even have borders in North America? I'm from South America. I was here before you. So I should be able to go wherever I want. This land's mine. And the guy said to him, uh, so you want the land back? I mean if you wanted to – you know, make this fair, you would ask for the land back. And he's like, well, I, of course, yeah, you stole it. And he's like, should we give it to you or should we give it to the people that you took it from right before we got here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or- <laughs> That's one thing we don't talk about is like literally every, every acre of land on the face of the earth Somebody has killed somebody else over it at some point in history. Yeah, everywhere. And every country. Right before the slave ships showed up to truck a bunch of people over here, those guys were stealing each other's slaves. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Over there. Why is it only a problem when white people do it? Because. (laughs) (laughs) That's the answer. That is truly the answer right there. Because. So Cody Dochev confronts – we just burned this podcast to the ground, but that's okay. <laughs> Cody Dochev confronts Marv after the auction and just gives him a tongue lashing, as Marv says, because Marv leaves, leaves hours and hours of rambling, stupid tapes about why he does what he eventually does. And he says, this guy was a real fucking asshole, talking about Cody Dochev. Uh-huh. And uh, – so Cody's mad that essentially that Marv won the auction. Cody had big big plans for that piece of property, but you know, don't come to an auction with five dollars when you need ten. <laughs> I believe that's how it goes. That old saying. Yeah, yeah. Don't 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 try to put ten pounds of cats in a five pound bag. I think that's how. So Marv puts up a muffler shop here. Now Marv has a lot of experience in muffler shops. He started out in muffler shops as a piss-on, rose up to the ranks, eventually opened one of his own. He had muffler shops in other counties, other towns. He was a pretty successful businessman and and really had the art of the muffler shop. He knew it like the back of his hand. Or the back of his car. <laughs> or the back of a car, yeah. And so he that's when he throws up his, his new mu- muff, muffler shop. And business is right off the bat a booming. Marv's doing well. He's a great welder, respected welder, 
and he's kind of fitting in, in ta- fitting in town at first. Everybody's kind of kind of digging him. Is he is he quiet about his muffler success? Marv comes off to me as kind of braggadocious. Mm. I will say this: Marv was known for through town of because you know obviously this is Colorado. This is a very cold part of the United States, so snowmobiling is huge here. Everybody that snowmobiled, I guess, in this town tried to get. Uh, there's snowmobile outfitted with what everybody referred to as a Marv bumper, and that's where he would uh, weld on these these homemade bumpers out of steel popping, and I guess you could push over trees with it and just make your snowmobile an impenetrable force in the woods, which would, I guess, come into play later. Okay. Sounds really good for the environment. I don't know if you've ever heard snowmobiles but or motorbikes. But when they're out there doing their thing, man, it is not quiet. And then to add the fact that they could just push over trees and stuff sounds like sounds like they're very good stewards stewards of the land. Maybe we should give it back to the Indians. And you know that's another thing we don't talk about: how much the Indians were running around on snowmobiles before we got exactly. here, exactly tearing up the land. I mean, we we only talk about the names that seem like very Indian, like like runs with bull or jumps with. Horse, but we don't we don't talk a lot about sleds with tread. Yeah, we don't talk about those Indians. So uh, not long after Marv's shop opens, our friend that we ended up interviewing here and we'll hear throughout this this episode, Patrick Brower, who who works for Sky High News, uh, approaches Marv to do a story on his new muffler shop business for the paper to give him a little bit of publicity. Marv agrees. Yeah, we can do that. You know. And uh, but Marv kind of makes his own hours. He's he's one of the only employees there. He's the boss, and he just kind of works when he feels like it. And I don't know if you've ever been to a small town. I grew up in a small town, but that's the way a lot of small town business owners are. It's just like is so and so open today? Well, fuck, I don't know. You have to go up there and see. Yeah, you know, if he's not there, just go to his house. Right. You know that's that's the way a lot of small town businesses operate. Yes, for sure. That's how small-town drug dealers in this town work. You never know if they're open or not. Never know. You just got to knock. Just got to knock. So the hours are unpredictable, and despite all Patrick's efforts, him not following up to do this story on his muffler shop pisses Marv off, uh, even though Patrick is really trying, and Marv just isn't there. (laughs) So that pisses Marv off. Patrick finally says, you know what? I'll give you the ad for free. So he runs the ad for him. But uh, it's too late. Marv has already got a bad taste for Patrick, even though Patrick really hasn't done shit. He gives a $250 ad to Marv for free to promote his business, which uh, I think anybody would agree is is pretty nice on his part. Well, two years later, just two years later, Patrick is is trying to do some barn relocation, which is where you tear down a, an old barn and piece by piece and then bring it to your property and reconstruct it, uh, which is my understanding of barn relocation. He, he needs a truck to borrow, and, and one of his buddies says, hey, I know Marv Hemeyer. You know, we'll, we'll get his truck, and maybe he'll let you borrow his truck. So Patrick goes with his buddy down there. Marv agrees. He says, yeah, $400. You can you can rent my truck for four days, but there is an issue with the hood. You got to keep it. Uh, you got to keep transmission fluid in it. Uh, transmission fluid runs out. Check the oil, coolant regularly. Uh, this hood is a little janky, though. You got to kind of knock it around to get it to open. Patrick says, okay, that's cool. Pays him the 400 bucks. Does exactly as Marv asked for ask of him with the truck for the four days. Returns it exactly as he had received it. 
and Marv starts jumping on his ass. What the hell is wrong with this hood? This is this isn't how I gave it to you, even though it was exactly how Marv had given it to him. And then he says, I'm going to have to take you to court, Patrick, or you can give me 800 bucks. Whoa. That seems like, what do you call that, blackmail? No. That seems... That seems like, uh, you call it a scam. Yeah. Ah, that's what, yeah, that's called that a scam. Yeah, that is what that is. Patrick, you know, never won to... To really draw things out, and he just doesn't feel like fucking with this asshole. He's like, here's 800 bucks, whatever, and he leaves. But he's already pissed Marv off. It doesn't take much, we're going to find out, to end up on Marv's shit list. Really, all you have to do to end up on Marv's shit list is fart in his vicinity. <laughs> that's that's about that's about all it wow, takes. that's not difficult. All right, we're going to fast forward a little bit to 1998. The year is 1998, and the town... Does what they call spots. Now, I need to I need to say something real quick. There is a lot, a lot of uh, political bullshit and red tape, mumbo jumbo, and town meetings, and yada yada yada, and property disputes, and blah 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 blah. We could do this. This episode would be eight hours long if we covered all of that bullshit. So I'm kind of hitting the main points here that lead to what becomes known as the Killdozer Rampage. That's the exciting part. Yeah, I, I this would be super boring if it was like the litigation dozer. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then five minutes of the dozer attack itself. Yeah, I'm just trying to get to the meat of this bone. That's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> okay, I like it. So in 1998. The town spot zones the two acres directly south of Marv's property, allowing Cody Dochev to put a concrete plant next to a residential area and next to Marv's muffler shop. Now, Marv had a big problem with this, allegedly because he said it would put him right in the in the wake of the dust storm that a concrete plant would inevitably kick up. Mm. Uh, but uh, I think a, 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 a large part of it was this chip on his shoulder he's got for Cody Dochev already. I have personal – I had a marketing agency that I owned that was next to a concrete plant, and we never got any concrete dust on any of our marketing plans. Never. Did you really not? No. Yeah, we never did. Okay, but let's even say that, that a concrete plant does kick up a lot of dust. It's a fucking muffler shop. Oh. Yeah, exactly. It, it's – it's well, what does it matter? Yeah, it's not like he's manufacturing those sticky hands that you flick at a wall and they're supposed to stick to the w- window. You know, like you, I can't get dust on them. <laughs> this isn't glass R us, cleanest glass windows that you can buy. This uh, this side of the yeah. Mississippi, or like a a medical factory for asthmatics. It's not, you know, yeah, they're not making inhalers. Yeah, you're gonna get dust on my tools. <laughs> I think this was just. Uh, 100% just a chip on his shoulder that he's got for old Cody Doche. I'd agree. Now, he, he says that spot zoning is illegal in Colorado at the time. I don't know. It might be, but a lot of people might be wondering what spot zoning is. Uh, and to understand spot zoning, you have to understand what zoning is. Zoning is a town classifying what areas of land within a town can be used for what purposes, such as residential areas, homes, industrial areas, factories, uh, shopping centers, yada, yada, yada. And it's just a way to lay out a town so that it's most efficient, most effective. That's the, that's exactly why, like, you don't see a drugstore in the middle of a neighborhood that looks like a house. 
because it's zoned for residential, right? Well, I guess you could have a drugstore. You just – you never know it. You never know it's a drugstore inside of a neighborhood. But but technically speaking, one that hangs a sign out front, you could not have. Yeah. With that – with keeping in mind what zoning is, spot zoning is is that town or the government, local government deciding, hey, this area, although – it is not mapped out to be one thing. We are making it legal for it to be something else. Do you know where that happens a lot, actually? In towns where someone wants to create a daycare out of their home and it needs to be rezoned at, for business purposes. Oh, okay. And a, and, yeah. and a town could opt to spot zone that individual property. But, man, even then it gets really hairy. Neighbors don't like it. Here's a fun fact about what you just said that isn't relevant to this one bit, but something that I learned uh, while I had to learn what all this stuff meant. Uh, if, if somebody were to do that and then that house were to burn down, it automatically uh, defaults back to its original zoning plan. Really? Oh. Huh. Yes. So if you were to buy that daycare – and then there was a fire and the house burned down and then you had to rebuild, it would no longer be a business zone. It would be a residential zone. Yeah, it probably probably no one would ever want to build a house on that because of all the kids that died. I get it, but Yeah. Mm, yeah. So that's a sad story. Now, it's also important to note that this concrete plant was going to be next to a residential area, a nice little set of houses, and that's what Marv used as leverage to get support and and his rallying cry to stop this uh, concrete plant from being put up, right? Were the neighbors mad about it, actually? Do you know? Not really. Not at first. They didn't really care. Cody Dochev was a well-known figure in the uh, in the community. Everybody knew each other. You know, it, it, it kind of seems like the the spirit of Granby is live and let live. You know, everybody works for their dollar. It's it's very just very mind your own business. Love your neighbor. You know your neighbor. So Mar- Marv is sort of stirring the turds here. Yeah, oh yeah, he is. So public hearings start not long after over the con- concrete batch plant, and Marv shows up very much against it. But in his whining and bitching and bickering about this, he does bring a lot of issues to light that were actually beneficial to the town. Uh, stuff like noise, traffic, dust, water. But apparently when it comes up, they kind of look at Cody and they're like, can you fix that, Cody? And he's like, yeah, it's not a problem. Yeah, I'll spray you know water occasionally on the on the driveway to keep the dust down and just normal stuff. Now, you need to keep in mind that while Marv is bitching about the waste, uh, contamination of the water supply, on Marv's own property, uh, his muffler shop was not hooked up to the public sewer, and he used a giant, you know, the back of one of those concrete trucks, the mixer of a concrete truck? Yeah, right. That's that's what he used as a septic tank. Ew. And it wasn't buried. What? Yeah. And... Yeah, and he was, and whenever it would get full, he would just dump it in a. He would dump all the raw sewage in an irrigation ditch. <laughs> Does not seem sanitary. You would think that the neighbors, the neighborhood, would have a problem with that. You know. Well, okay, so it's it's important to keep in mind that this is what we're talking about here, nineteen ninety eight, right? So he's been doing this already for six years. The town has left him alone. They should have been on his ass from day one about this, right? But they're kind of trying to get along with this guy. They're doing everything they can to get along with this guy. So Marv's bitching. Meanwhile, he's shitting in the irrigation ditch, basically, and having everybody else shit. 1999 rolls around. The town 
finally approves the batch plant under a large number of conditions due to what Marv brought along. Now, in the same year that the town, 1999, the town approves the batch plant, that same year, Marv files a lawsuit against the town and the concrete plant. So he's doing really everything in his power to fight this thing uh, all the way to the end, you know? Mm-hmm. In 2000, Granby's like, finally, okay, you know, look, Marv, we've, me, all this lawsuit stuff is going on. They're like, they're finally like, look, Marv, you got to connect to the town sewage lines. You should have done it in 92. <laughs> we, we've turned a blind eye to this long enough. You can't keep dumping your sewage in our ditches that just get then dispersed throughout the town. The kids down the road are catching nine-eyed frogs and, and getting Marv shit in their mouth and playing in it. And just, you know, it's just not good for it's not good for anybody. But on top of that, it's illegal. If you're running a business, you have to be hooked to the public sewage. Makes sense, right? Yeah, I would think. Marv kind of tells them to fuck off, and they're like, okay. Uh, They get a court order to close the doors until he does so, which is uh, kind of expected. Wouldn't wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I would think, based on my tertiary knowledge of uh, sewage law. Yeah, so uh, let's, well, let's let Patrick Brower go into a a little bit of, of what happened here. Okay. Yeah, it was a, a, a mini a Luger mini, I think they call it. Ruger mini. How much time passed between Marv buying the property, turning it into the muffler shop, and the town starting to like pressure him into hook to the public sewer line? Wow. Uh, so the town didn't start. Pre- okay, well, I'll answer that directly. He bought the uh, property in, it was 92, I think early 92 and the town never started even leaning on them to uh hook up until it would have been 2000 yeah that's what i because because the way marv likes to try to try to worm his way into sounding like the victim is he buys this property and then the town immediately starts pressuring him no that's not true yeah exactly he got away with it for almost a decade right before the doc yes that's true the documentary makes you think that but the truth is, is that the town uh, didn't, well, they couldn't really force them to connect anyway, because the whole problem was that the sewer main that was near his property was many hundreds of feet away. And so in order for him, for the town to compel him to connect, it would have had to have been within, I think, 100 feet or 200 feet. And it would have been about seventy, eighty thousand dollars, correct? Right. Um, you have to remember that. You know, here's the key thing that a lot of people don't understand. Marv went to the sewer district, not the town, right after he bought the property, and said, "I'd like to hook on to your sewer." Right. Okay. He went to them. They didn't go to him and say, "Hey, you son of a gun, you're out of compliance. We're going to force you to hook on." And uh, they said, okay, and, you know, they looked, they, they did the evaluation and told them, well, you can do it, but unfortunately it's going to be extremely expensive because you're going to have to build a lift station, you're going to have to extend all that service line, uh, and you've got to pay, you know, a tap fee. Um, a lift station is extremely expensive because the sewer main that was the nearest was, it was uh, dead. It was not, you know, it hadn't been primed. Right. So he would have had to put a lift station in, 
to get the sewage high enough to prime it so it could flow to the plant. Okay. Okay. And so, and so they just told him that, and he got all pissed off, you know, and said, well, you know, he just stormed out of there. And uh, so, but after that happened, they didn't go to him and say, you have to hook on or we're going to throw the book at you or whatever. None of that ever happened until 2000 when after the Dochefs had put in their sewer main to their batch plant, the, the main was then close enough to hook on. Right. And uh, the town manager went to him and said, hey, Marv, uh, you know, they weren't jerks to him, believe me, because they were kind of scared of him. And said, you know, do you want to, it's time for you to hook on, you know, we'd be happy to work with you however we can. And he just hung up on them. They did it again. And then even at that point in 2000, his enemies next door, who became his enemies, the Tochefs, they called him up and said, Marv, we'll let you hook on for free. Just drop your lawsuit against us in the town. Marv hung up on them. It kind of seems like he was always, from the beginning, looking for a fight. And then trying think, to play the victim I card. That, I think that there is a lot to that. I think he was looking to be victimized. Exactly. Uh, um, I mean, he created a narrative that made him look like, you know, I could have put in all this uh, a commercial center down there if the town hadn't, you know, if the sewer district had just let me hook on and all that. And, you know, that's kind of after-the-fact narrative wishful thinking, um, he could have hooked on. It just would have been expensive. And i got to tell you that that's the standard policy of every sewer district and or if a town owns a sewer plant, same thing. You know... No matter who owns it. Right. You're welcome to hook on, but you got to pay to hook on. You know, it's your expense. We're not going to subsidize you hooking on to the sewer. And we are back. Now... Like I said, Granby says, Marv, you got to shut the doors until you get connected to the sewage lines. Marv doesn't do so, and he keeps he keeps his business running, and that's when the town starts finding him $100 a day for continuing operation. Meanwhile, Cody Dochiff is continuing construction on the new concrete batch plant, and Marv is just sitting around over there fuming. He can't believe they're doing him this way, even though he kind of really brought all this on himself. Yeah, he did. Turns out that it would have been around $70,000 for him to hook up to the city sewer lines. That's that's big money. I'm not going to not going to lie. That, that that's big money for me. I'm sure it's big money for you. That's big money for anybody. But Marv spends around $150,000 fighting the town in court to not have to hook up to the sewer lines. Well, on the one hand, he's trying to push the guy the the guys around that are trying to do this concrete plant and at the same time he's not in one he's not wanting to toe the line with you know city ordinance and whatever exactly he wants to have everything his way he thinks everybody else should have to follow the rules but not him yeah. now he does have an an alternate an alternate way out around this time he he can avoid the $70,000 fee to hook up to the city sewer lines because Cody Dochiff the man that that Marv has fought tooth and nail to prevent progress on his concrete plant, offers to let Marv connect to the water supply through his property in an easement. And an easement is allowing somebody right way to your property in a a way so that they can get access to something. Right. 
And that's what Cody offers him. The only the only catch is Marv has to drop the lawsuit against him and the town. I would take that, right? Yeah, it seems Hey, man, you can reasonable. use my... It, it'll be next to nothing for you. You can hook up for almost free. Drop the lawsuit. Well, everybody walks away happy. You get your, I get my plant. You get, you get hooked to the to the water supply, the the sewage drains. Everybody walks away happy, right? Yeah. Marv tells Cody to fuck off. <laughs> of course he does. Jeez, Marv. Not long after that, all the lawsuits that Mark had brought that not Mark, I don't even know who Mark is, <laughs> that Marv. <laughs> That Marv had brought to the town and to the concrete plant are dismissed by the judge. So he just dropped over one hundred fifty grand on absolutely nothing. Oh my gosh, what a waste! Now it, it, it comes up in some in other podcast episodes and other articles, and and a lot of people that that worship Marv for whatever reason uh, that that they were gonna they were gonna mess with his access road to his to his business. That was never the case at any point ever. There was never dispute over an access road hmm. at any point ever. Okay. So can we put that to rest? Anybody that plans on doing a podcast in the future, writing a book, doing an article, even if you're one of those boogaloo boys who 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 fucking hate the government, just don't talk about an access road because it was never an aspect of anything. Marv's access road was never in danger at any point. I guess if I'm if I'm flip flopping the situation just for a second. The, the attention to Marv's sewage situation, though, was was brought to light because of the concrete plant and because of their push and pull with the city and everything. You know, if Marv hadn't ever pushed against them in their concrete plant construction, they wouldn't have been like... If he'd have shut up and left them alone, they would have left him alone, kind of. Yeah. You know, it's like, you brought this on yourself, big guy. Yeah. You know, like, you want to make money, we respect that. We're trying to make money, too. Why are you bothering us? Yeah, you won the auction, By the way, man. I mean, yeah, I was mad at yeah, you. Yeah, you already but, took yeah. a bit, a part of our business pr- from us. Like, just leave us alone. You know, it's just like Marv wants it all. Yeah. Marv, Marv wants to be able to do anything that he wants to do, but he also wants to prevent other people. From and 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 it kind of seems like in his in his rambling and his bullshit on these tapes, he he rambles a lot about how uh, Catholics. He he really hates Catholics, <laughs> and how they they are all about holding your neighbor down so you can get up. Wow, you know when it's kind of like that's kind of what Marv was trying to do here. Yeah, it was all about him and his own business, his own success, his own advancement. Yeah. Huh. So, all his lawsuits are dismissed, and Marv is defeated, and he's 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 emasculated and embarrassed, and people are snickering at him in town because now he's the town loon that won't shut the fuck up, <laughs> and just like <laughs> he's just, uh, and it's around this time that Marv is sitting in his hot. T- now we need to elaborate. Marv is very wealthy. He's a very successful man up until this point. Mm-hmm. Many successful businesses. Uh, if he wasn't a millionaire, he was damn close. Okay, he, he was doing very well for himself. He had two cabins in Grand Lake, where he lived, sixteen miles from Granby. And it's uh, around this time that Marv is sitting in his hot tub overlooking the mountains. Beautiful view. You can look at pictures from the from the hot tub where he had this 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 God moment. 
and uh, anybody would be happy to live here. He had a great life. He really had a great life. And But apparently Marv is sitting there in his hot tub drinking a beer one night, just stewing, just a little, <laughs> just making a little anger stew with his butt juices in the hot tub there, <laughs> just mad and drinking. And God... Angry with his bucolic scenery in front of him. Ugh. Well, he, he speaks, he, he says that he has a message from God, and it's not verbal. He just feels this peace wash over him. And he's sitting there in the hot tub, and he feels calm, and he's like, it's from God. God tells him what he has to do. He has to make them all pay. They'll all pay, I tell you. <laughs> Everybody will pay. It's very common with God. Yeah, he's like, I'll help you. You should really start questioning anybody that says that God told them to do something. <laughs> you should be like, I have some questions. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of medications are you on? Yeah. Are you not taking those medications? So God told you to do this thing, and these people have no idea what's coming or what they did. Um, you need to keep in mind a lot of the 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 sins that that were committed against Marv were almost nothing. <laughs> Well, yeah, to your point, to your point. I don't know that God gets involved when you have a really weak sauce civil suit that fails. I don't think God swoops down most of the time no. and says, hey, let me let me level the playing field here. I see that your civil suit, uh, you know, in local circuit court failed. So watch this. <laughs> I don't think that happens. Yeah, God wasn't sitting in the back. And when the judge went dismissed, he was like, that's fucking bullshit. <laughs> That's, that's <laughs> Marv, come with me. <laughs> uh, go get in the hot tub. I got to talk to you. This is unbelievable what they're doing to you here, Marv. Uh, <laughs> so this epiphany in the hot tub is the first domino. Uh, the first domino. Uh, this is when it, things start going downhill for Marv. Marv puts his property up for sale for $250,000. We don't know why yet. But it's at this point, Cody swoops in and he tries to buy it, Cody Dochev. Now, Marv gave $42,000 for the property. Cody says, I'll give you $250,000 for the property, which is, if you do the math, a $208,000 profit. Wow. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad at all, right? I would break Cody's arm getting that check out of his hand. <laughs> Marv tells Cody to fuck off. <laughs> It seems like Marv has one response for everything, which kind of makes me think I know why Marv never got married. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Marv, do you want to go to the malt shop? Hey, why don't you pop? <laughs> I just see it. It's almost like Marv hates it when people call his bluff. <laughs> yeah. Marv throws the property up at that point. For $375,000. So wait, Marv makes the offer for two fifty. Then he gets someone yes. who wants, who's willing to take him up on his offer, and he tells him Yeah, but it's Cody Dochev, the man he hates. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, no, no, I want $375,000. And then Cody goes, okay, I'll give you $375,000 for it. And Marv goes... Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> okay, circling back to the marriage thing again. I know this is why he never got married. Marla, would you marry me? Why, Marv, of course I will. Hey, what the hell? Fuck off. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> 
So Cody agreed to pay $375,000 for a property that almost a decade earlier Marv had given $42,000 for. That's 300 at hold on let me do the math here 342 25 plus 8 25 that's $332,000 profit so in the summer of 2002 marv angry that somebody tried to buy his property um that he was selling and that they were going to give his asking price for <laughs> without question or doing a counter offer he he ventures Marv goes Marv goes on a little trip to California to a Richie Brothers heavy equipment auction. And it's there that he purchases a Komatsu D three fifty five bulldozer and it's delivered to Granby in July of two thousand and two. And I, I want to talk to you about this dozer this dozer op because it gets my my engine or gets my engine a roar and I'm I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm excited. So this is a, a Komatsu D three fifty five A Comes with a turbocharged 1,175 cubic inch, 410 horsepower SA6 D155 engine. Comes in at a whopping 97,907 pounds without armor. Has a max speed of 8 pop miles per hour and is 13 foot tall and 18 foot long. I don't know if you heard that news, that noise, but that's my erection hitting the bottom of the desk. Well, that almost got me into four. Fuck yeah, baby. Ooh. Now, like I said, this dozer weighs 97,907 pounds before anything is done to it. This is a, without anything being done to it, it's almost a tank. It's on treads. Wow. So, like I said, Mark has this dozer. Mark, once again with Mark. Marv has this dozer delivered back to Granby, and he parks it so that Cody Dochev can see it. At the end of his road with a for sale sign strapped to the front of it, and that's where it sits for the winter of 2002 into 2003, and it's sitting there strictly for intimidation for Cody Docha. <laughs> and I don't know if you've seen pictures of this thing. It is a whopper of a dozer. It is a big bastard. Now, this is the first time that I'm going to mention the Thompson family. The Thompson family, where they were uh, a, a prominent family in the community, they, were, they ran a... a uh, a company called Thompson's Excavation. Uh, they had been the Thompson family had been in Granby for for many many years since the 1800s. Actually, they were, uh, but they were hard workers. They were they were what the locals called the hardest working millionaires in the town, and they just seemed very blue collar. They wear Carhartt and blue jeans, despite the fact that they're millionaires. Uh, but they're doing very well for themselves. And Co- and Marv absolutely hated them. Absolutely hated them. Now, in 1992, I could never figure out what happened, but Marv had a run-in with Dick Thompson, the father of the Thompson brothers, and it was a chip that Marv carried for the rest of his life, and it somehow, according to Marv, cost him $300,000. I wish I could figure out exactly what happened. I, could, I wasn't able to dig that up, but uh, at some point in the late 90s, early 2000s, Dick Thompson passes away, and all that's left is two of the brothers because the oldest brother also passes away. So all we have now left is is uh, Larry and Gary Thompson. One day in the spring of 2003, Larry and Gary are doing a little bit of work over the hill there in front of Marv's house. They, they Like I said, they've got an excavation company. Marv comes barreling down in his truck and confronts Larry Thompson about the beef he had had with his father back in 1992. <laughs> He says, and he says to Larry, quote, your dad fucked me out of $300,000 a 
back in 92 and I want $300,000 from you. Now, Larry takes a page out of Marv's book and says, fuck off. As you would. As somebody would to that. If somebody pulled up to my house right now and said, your dad screwed me out of $10 yeah. back in 87 and I want it from you right now, I would be like, you're going to have to pull it out of my ass because I'm going to go down swinging. You're not getting shit out of me. I don't know you anything. Oh, man. So just in case you're wondering, this is going to be imp- important here in a minute. That's how the Thompsons end up on Marv's shit list. Now, it's also the Thompsons were in what Marv referred to as the good old boys club, which is the prominent members of the of the local society there, the the the, you know, the the puppets of the town, the the puppeteers. Of the town, what what as as Marv saw mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, really quick though, what what is your opinion? Because you know, towns do have leadership. Towns do have string pullers, and you know the the types that make the gears spin. You know those types of people. Oh, they absolutely do. I'm from a small town like this. There are assholes that just because of their last name, and I grew up with people like this, where somebody. Say, say uh, in high school, you know, I remember, I remember there were people that have catchy, popular last names for the town because of who their families are. Mm-hmm. Say I went out and and was playing mailbox baseball, you know, like young teenagers do, and I got caught. Maybe, maybe the punishment for me wouldn't be the same as if one of these young men with this. Uh, fashionable last name would have been caught doing the same thing. And see, that's what I was getting at. I was wondering if, in your opinion, any of these people that that are saying, we had nothing to do with this. We're just innocent bystander. I had nothing to do, blah, blah, blah. Do you think any of those people were these types of people, the ones where when their kid... I think there's a good chance of it. Yeah, when the kid, like, kills someone in a DUI, they're the kid that doesn't, that you know, they're the parents that can get the kid out of... You know, harm's way. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Okay. Because I, 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 I figured he wasn't working with just the schlubs of the town, that these were actually, you know, the wheelers, dealers. These were the prominent figures oh. of the community, yes. yes. Okay. Yes. But, I mean, you can look up interviews with these brothers, and they come off as, I mean, they're wearing they're wearing rugged clothes. They've got their work. They got their work clothes on, their equipment behind them. They don't have employees that do all the work themselves. And we're not talking about easy work here, man. Yeah. This is excavation stuff, you know. These are these might be millionaires, but they're hard workers. Yeah. They're they're not they're not suit and tie kind of guys. They they get their hands dirty and any man that'll get his hands dirty, any woman that'll get her hands dirty, I don't care how much money you have, I respect that. I agree with that. So it's around this time, not long after the spring of 2003, that Marv puts his entire property up for sale again, but this time in an auction. Everything goes. Everything. Now, the only thing that doesn't sell is the dozer, the komatsu, and the property itself. And Marv once again sees this. He put the dozer up for sale. Yes. Interesting. Yes. Okay. Weird. Put everything he owned up for sale there. Now, Marv sees this as a sign from God. Well, the only thing I've got left is this warehouse and this dozer. Looks like I'm going to destroy the town. You know, like, not long after this, Marv and his girlfriend break up because Trisha has started smoking again, and Marv can't have that. Now, let's completely ignore the fact that he's lost his marbles. He's talking to God. 
He can't stop fighting with everybody else. But Trisha, how dare her pick up smoking? Of course she picks up smoking. She has to have some nicotine to deal with this fucking asshole. I would venture to say that Marv probably didn't obey the little sign next to the hot tub on how long you're supposed to stay in before it does damage to your... Oh, maybe he had a stroke. Or several. (laughs) Yeah. And every time he had a stroke, he smelled bananas and heard God, you know. So in September of 2003, Marv leases his property to a man named Travis Bussey for Travis to use for his trash company. Now, Travis just wanted the outside area so he could use it as a staging area for all his trash trucks. He didn't need that that warehouse. So Marv, Marv leases his property to Travis to use for his staging area, and, and Marv gets to keep the warehouse. So uh, Marv's like, well, I've got this building. I'm getting income off the property. I get to keep the warehouse. We might as well start working on this thing. <laughs> so he pulls that pulls that dozer in, and he finds that the dozer will fit through the massive bay doors of this warehouse by two inches on each side. Wow. Which is another sign from God. (laughs) There's a lot of signs from God in this. It's impressive. It's a very spiritual guy. Now, on November 26th, 2003, Travis Bussey says, Ah, you know what? I don't think I want to rent this anymore. I'll just buy the whole property off of you, Marv. And Marv sells it to him for $400,000. Wow. That's 10 times what he paid for it. And then, But Marv also back rents the building off of him in that transaction. So somehow they, I worked out a transaction transaction where Travis will buy, the, buy the, the property, and then but a lot of his rent will be covered in that transaction for X amount of time. I'm, a, I'm assuming it was probably for just enough amount of time for Marv to finish the dozer and then kill himself. Mm. Yeah. So now Marv has no bills. It's also around this time. Marv takes that $400,000 and he gives it to his father in $50,000 increments. He has no money. Marv has $0. He gives all of his money to his father, and he also starts giving away all his assets, his snowmobiles, everything. Everything he owns, he starts giving away. All he has now is a dozer in this in this warehouse. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm good friends with somebody – and my buddies, say we all have three-wheelers, and my buddy who loves three-wheelers one day is like, you can have that three-wheeler. You can have all my three-wheelers. You, need, you, want, any, you want any of my other stuff? You can have this, too. I'm going to be like, hey, uh, hey, Bill, <laughs> you're not going to fucking kill yourself, are you? Like, <laughs> That's the first question that I'm asking, dude. Well, to be fair, if your friend was trying to sell you a bunch of three-wheelers, they had probably already killed all of his family off anyway because those things are death traps. But, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I digress. I see your point. You, you know what I mean? No, how did nobody see this coming? How did nobody see this 97,000-pound yeah. bull in the room coming? <laughs> how did <laughs> – how was everybody shocked by this? How could his father be like, oh, okay, another 50 grand? Oh, all right, I guess I'll take it. Well, I reckon. I reckon I'll take yeah. it from you. I don't know. <laughs> so now Marv has no money, no assets. He starts living in the building, in the warehouse that he's pulled this dozer into. All he has in there is a cot, a TV, a hot plate, and water. The tools needed to complete the mission from God and a copy of A Man Apart with Vin Diesel and a RoboCop on VHS. <laughs> He's a veritable John the Baptist just out there on his own 
with a hot plate. So they think that the movie A Man Apart may have been a movie that inspired him to to commit this this crime because um, it's about a guy, you know, getting vengeance on a on a on the government for for wrongdoing, and it makes me wonder how much different this story would be if the movie that he was obsessed with was instead The Human Centipede <laughs> and not. <laughs> <laughs> Cody Doshev just wakes up in that warehouse one morning with his his mouth taped to the asshole of of one of the Thompson brothers who have a very protein rich diet, I'm sure, of bacon and sausage and whiskey. And <laughs> or it could have been even worse if it had been Human Centipede. He might have gotten three of those dozers and just connected them all. Yeah. <laughs> Just welded the dozers together and God's like, yeah, but what do you do from here? Like, what is, how is this getting, how is this getting anybody back? And Marvel's like, well, I'm just going to leave it. Can you imagine how much of a pain in the ass this is going to be to move? They come in there like, like, he's got a hot plate. He's got a videotape of a human centipede and uh, Thomas the Train. Okay. That makes sense. So Marvel's just living in this warehouse. He, he's, he's working during the nighttime. And sleeping during the day so that he doesn't, so the noise doesn't draw attention. Obviously, it's a lot of welding. Uh, and, and in his downtime, he's eating poorly cooked meals off this hot plate and watching a Robocop and a man apart. So, uh, it honestly sounds kind of like a fun life. I was going to say, if I ever lost my family or never got married, I'd probably do something similar. <laughs> Now, in March of 2004, that's this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Marv's father dies. Oh, man. Now, who's he, who's he going to give $50,000 on the regular to? So, this is actually very – this is uh, this is not good news for the people of the community who would end up losing their properties to Marv, and this is why. What Marv did was extremely intelligent. All of his assets and what assets he didn't give to friends were given to his father – his, all his money was given to his father. So when his father passed away, all of that was then dis- dispersed amongst his family, his brothers and sisters, which means that when he goes on this rampage, when it comes time to collect, to, to, to pay people back for all the damages that he's caused, Marv isn't worth a dollar. There's nothing oh, there. Man. So they can't. There's nothing to collect from. There's not a pot to dip their hand in. Jeez. Oh, so, and this is just me speculating. I don't know, uh, but but fun fact: May thirteenth, two thousand four, just days before the rampage, uh, the final episode of Frasier airs, and and maybe that was like that was it. That was like because I know old people loved that show. I never, I always fucking hated it, but I know a lot of old people were very upset when Frasier was over with, and maybe. Maybe Marv saw the, the season finale. He's like, well, what's the point? What's the, what's the point in anything anymore? <laughs> I think Frazier's over. What's the point? I think you cracked the case. I think that's exactly what it is. <laughs> so Marv's, you know, he's working on this tank. And now let's get into it's no longer even a dozer anymore. Op, it's a tank. This is a tank. We're going to refer to it. As a tank from here on out, and let's go into why. Let's let's get into the the design and 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 the additions that he made to this behemoth, shall we? Yes, we shall. So, Marv, this thing is really a a work of engineering art. It's really impressive what he what he did here. It had uh, what is called composite armor, 
which is composite armor is is not like traditional armor in which you just have one plate, like a sappy plate, you know, like what the flak jackets that Marines and soldiers wear in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Composite armor is is different materials uh, piled together. And the composite armor, that the makeshift composite armor that Marv covered literally almost every inch of this, this tank in was made from half-inch thick sheets of tool steel. And there was a four-inch gap between each sheath that he then filled full of quickcrete. 5,000 PSI quickcrete to be exact. So you have overall, it's a five-inch five inch wall between uh, the outside and the inside. There was a, a wall of this armor over the cab, the entire cab of the vehicle. Ha, uh, somewhat, a lot of the treads, and then also the engine bay. And that was, like I said, two sheets of half-inch thick sheet steel with four inches of 5,000 5, PSI quickcrete in between it. So borderline impenetrable. Wow. Like, That's crazy. Uh, really impressive. I can imagine the amount of work that went into that. Now, on top of that, so that there was no entryway to the cab, he had five cameras wired to the outside that were ran to three monitors mounted on the vehicle's control panel. So it's completely driven without having to look outside, much like a tank. Was there air intake? Like, how did he breathe? Was it a... How did he breathe? Yeah, like... like Okay, well, let's get into that. Okay. He had wired up air conditioning and fans inside the cockpit to keep himself cool. Huh. So uh, I'm not sure where, they, where the drain... I know that... Well, we'll get into that later on in the story. But at some point, they try to throw stun grenades down into the into the ports that they suspect go to the the air conditioning and everything, and it has zero effect. So, but he had some way a way a, a way to keep cool in there with air conditioning and fans. I would think that if you went to the if you went to the efforts of building this giant thing like this with all the things and the stuff and the things sticking off of it, you'd probably make a couple. Uh, what do you call those false walls or false false channels? You know where it seems uh, yeah, obvious. Yeah, and it, he was very intelligent, so it's likely that he did that. Yeah. Hmm. Now the cameras that were the five cameras that were mounted uh, on each side and front and back of the vehicle had three inch thick sheets of bulletproof Lexan guarding them. So the cameras are bulletproof, and then he also has three by six inch. Uh, portholes in various spots around so he can look out little bitty windows that he made at any point as well. Those also had three inch Lexan sheets, bulletproof Lexan. Now he had hooked up compressed air nozzles to every camera on the dozer so that if any point debris, bricks, what have you, falls in front of him, he can reach over, turn this valve, and it will blow a strong jet of air and and clear the debris out in front of the camera mm, okay. without him ever having to leave the cockpit. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Like the fastest way to disable it would be to disable his eyes, but he even thought that through, huh? He's already got that covered. Man. The tank had three gun ports. the The back of the tank had a Barrett M eighty two A one fifty caliber semi automatic sniper rifle. That's badass. You heard that correctly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a big ass gun. That is a large weapon. And it was loaded with incendiary rounds. Wow. Yeah. 
Those aren't cheap. I think <clears throat> yeah. those are like those run about eight grand, thousands of eight, dollars, eight to ten thousand yeah. dollars for that gun. He was a very wealthy man, so it was probably pennies in a pot to yeah, him. I guess. Now on the front end, there was another gun port for an FNFNC five five six selective fire rifle, and it can go from single shot to three round burst to fully automatic. Can it do full semi? Full semi. <laughs> I think we just call that fully automatic. That's <laughs> <laughs> now, on the right-hand side of the tank, he has a Ruger Mini-14, which is a two twenty three caliber semi-automatic. Mm. And all of these, uh, all of these gun ports are fitted with half-inch thick steel plates. So if you if you were to look at this from the in, from the inside. It almost looks like a triangle facing outwardly that has a hole in the middle of it, so it leaves room for Marv to pivot. I see. So he can pivot. Like the like the top of a castle, those little slits. Exactly. But they're open on the other side, so they can pivot. I see. Okay. Exactly. So now we have a fortified, impenetrable, extremely dangerous tank. Now, he also paints it black. So this thing, man, it looks like it escaped Lucifer and just gnarled out of hell, and it's like what the devil would ride in around in hell. That's what this thing looks like. <laughs> it's really badass. It's really badass. It gets me so, so erect <laughs> thinking about this thing. Now, he also, just to show you how intelligent this man was, and he was intelligent, nobody can can argue on Marv's intelligence, before he before he sets he sets out on his adventure, he greases the entire external the the outside of it with KY jelly or lube or grease, maybe uh, I don't know what, so that climbing it is nearly impossible. Yeah, probably not KY. It was probably like Crisco, something like that. But he greases the entire outside of it, so it's just slick. But it wouldn't even matter if they got on top of it because Marv, whenever he gets inside, bolts himself in. He had no intentions of leaving once he got inside. He knew this, this was his last ride. Man. So now we know about the tank, which is now a tank. Let's get into the, the day that it happens. The And that's on June 4th, 2004. You know, what's going on? What's going on in 2004, Op? Um, well, you got really popular movies, uh, the Polar Express, Shrek 2, Shrek 2, Christmas with the Cranks came out then, uh, oh. Polar Express. God, you just keep naming movies that are awful. Dodgeball, I believe. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, a Good Woman with uh, a couple women and a guy in it. Did I mention Christmas with the Cranks? You said something about Christmas. Yeah. I think it was Polar Express. 2004 was was not exactly a bastion of movie. Or entertainment, period, because the number one hits for June 4th, 2004 on the music charts were Gretchen Wilson's Redneck Woman and Usher's Let It Burn. I don't know if you've heard any one of those songs that Gretchen Wilson, I'm a redneck woman, I ain't no high class broad. <laughs> And I creep my Christmas lights on and I say, hey, all everyone. <laughs> and then there's also Usher's Let It Burn. I think that you should let it burn. 
When your feelings ain't same and nobody Something, something to know Gotta let it go Something, something Where was I in 2004? <laughs> Neither one of those songs I've ever heard in my whole entire life Even in 2004 Okay, well look, I'll, I'll admit I I have, in my, in my late teens I may have I may have really blared some "Let It Burn" after a bad the ending to a bad relationship <laughs> uh, on more than one occasion. Full disclosure, I really liked that song. Can can I cut in here with a personal story, really quick? Just really quick. I'll bring it on. I'll, absolutely. Okay, so this wasn't in two thousand four, but you made me think of it when you said terrible relation, you know, breakup. So I'm in the shower one time, and I'm like. 13 and uh my brother comes to the bathroom door and says hey your girlfriend's on the phone and i'm like well i'm in the shower he leaves for a second comes back he says she says it's really important i'm like freaking what so my dad's den was right across the hallway from the bathroom so i just trucked right through the hall naked wet as a jaybird are jaybirds wet? Anyway, I went into the den, shut the door, locked it. So I'm in there naked, and I sit down in my dad's giant leather chair, naked, wet. I pick up the phone, and my girlfriend's like, so I just feel like we're going in different directions, and I feel like this isn't working. And I was sitting there, and she says, do you have anything to say? I mean, you're just sitting there quietly. And then I realized I was not talking because I had to fart so bad that I just did it while I was on the phone. But, hey, <laughs> here's the chemistry combination that was going on. I'm wet. I'm naked in a leather chair. So it sounded kind of like... And then, so I, I just let this, like, you know, six-liter Hemi fart go. And then I was like, no, nah, I don't have anything to say. <laughs> anyway. Why did you just set it set in there butt naked? Why? That's, I, what kind of Neanderthal? Well, no, none of my just, family was home except for my brother, and I knew this. But I was in the shower. So what? I just, just hauled butt into there, literally naked butt into there. I just, you know, I was 13. I, my brain had fallen out all over the place. Anyway, it was epic. It was an epic, <laughs> memorable Richter scale shaker. It was the best breakup I've ever had. Perfect end to a relationship. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I told you that. So June 4th, 2004. People are also using AOL, oh. Instant Messenger. You know, yeah. I remember AOL. You remember that? Yeah. Oh God, I love that. I was trying to get, I, I was trying to get ladies. Well, <laughs> L, you know, hey, what are you doing? WYD. <laughs> you know, AFK. Okay, that means you're going to get a sandwich. I still remember my my sign in. My sign in name was Mesger under slash zero zero, which was the, my the last name of my favorite motocross racer, Mike Mesger. <laughs> Mesger underscore zero zero. What's up? Nothing, bruh. His last name had zeros in it? That's weird. 
It wasn't. That was my favorite. That was my baseball number, double zero, zero, zero. Uh, what was the underscore? Your favorite uh, character? <sighs> keyboard character? Yeah. yeah. Mine's asterisk. Yeah, yeah. That's my favorite keyboard character. What was your AOL sign-in name when you were younger? And then I ran. Wait, what? And then I ran. It was like... It ends. It, it all ends in I ran? And then I ran. Is that what you said? And then I oh, ran. Oh, and then you ran. Yeah, like, that seemed to be the ending to all my jokes or stories was, and then I ran. Uh, but it didn't. I also didn't know that it's also a flock of seagulls song, so... Everyone all the time was like, hey, is that a is that a are you hearkening back? Is that an homage to the Flock of Seagulls song and then I ran? And I'm like, No, I didn't know what you're talking about. <laughs> After a while I just started saying yes. Well, we got an idea of what kind of culture or what kind of entertainment is popular and what people are doing, and that's not what Marv Himar was doing on this morning on June fourth, two thousand four, because around noon Around noon, Marv, he's in his shop there. He probably eats some kind of breakfast. Stepped up, steps up to his little dirty mirror there in his shop and buzzes his head. And then dons that iconic button-up Hawaiian shirt that he would be eventually well-known for. I don't know about you, but the last thing I want to die is like a a Don Juan button-up <laughs> Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> <laughs> From Tommy Hilfiger. Balding Crockett and Tubbs. Yeah, just no. So, yeah, he buzzes his head, puts on his Hawaiian shirt, and he he climbs into this to this behemoth that he's created. Uh, pulls that pulls that little small door shut on top and bolts it shut. And Marv knows he's never going to see the light of day outside of this thing ever again. He has no intentions of it. Around 2.04 p.m. on June 4th, 2004, the building of that warehouse, the front end of it, explodes. Marv doesn't even raise the doors. He just drives through the front of it. And and our attack has commenced, and it has commenced in the most badass way possible (laughs) by driving through your own building. Just Uh, I guess he wasn't going to... Do much more with the building, so he's like, my Marv well. has reached. Yeah. No, he was finished with the building. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of almost like it's almost like Chrysalis. a butterfly shedding its 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 cocoon. Like that that, that there's something about this, like that caterpillar. That I, I wish great. that the brand of that dozer had been <laughs> caterpillar, so that. So that it went into that warehouse, into the cocoon, and then came out a beautiful, black, dangerous, deadly, impenetrable butterfly. Just a so, but it doesn't need its cocoon no. anymore, <laughs> and Marv doesn't need it anymore. So at two o four p.m., the front of the building explodes, and out comes this big black butterfly on tank treads. Marv crosses the property, which is a very short distance, and goes, obviously, of course, straight to Mountain Park's concrete and begins destroying a smaller building there. Uh, he, he pretty much levels it when he crosses the property. As he's crossing the property to get to the larger batch plant, a lady named Sherry at the, that works for the trash company 
uh, that had that had bought Marv's property. That's when she calls nine one one, and uh, you can imagine what that phone call probably sounded like. Yeah, um, this is Sherry at the at the trash company. Um, yeah, there's it's like a. <laughs> There's a fucking tank, and it's just, like, destroying the concrete plant. Yeah. No, you heard me. Yeah, it's a... No, I said a tank. A, t- a tank. Yes, like a fuck... Like a tank. No. I'm not... Mis- it's a literal... It's a fucking tank, ma'am. No, it's actually a tank. It's destroying... Yes. Yes. Destroying the concrete... Yes, I'll hold. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Sherry's contacting 911. Uh Cody Dochev is notified. Uh Cody notices finally this do this 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 tank ripping his 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 business that he's built from the ground up to pieces. He runs, he grabs a revolver from one of his buddy and runs up and just starts blasting the side of this tank. And obviously a little 38 revolver isn't going to do anything to this. It's unlikely Marv was even aware that that was happening. That's how, you know, we'll find out later throughout this this rampage. This tank takes shots from almost every caliber of bullet imaginable, including but not limited to 50 cal. And it just bounces Mm. off. It doesn't do shit. Nothing. So this thirty-eight revolver to the side of this is probably equivalent to hitting it with a slingshot. Honestly. So, Marv begins destroying the main building while Cody is unloading this 38 into the side of it. It's at this time the, the, the cinder blocks are coming down and he is driving right through. I mean, you can look at pictures of all these buildings that I'll be bringing up. They're all leveled. Uh, the barrel of the Ruger Mini 14 that's poking out the right side of the tank gets bent and damaged, making it inoperable. So at least Marv can't hit anybody with a round on his right side. So he's he's now dead on both his right and left side in terms of being able to return fire, which is fortunate. That's good. Meanwhile, employees of Mount Park Concrete gather a uh, they get a large piece of half inch round stock steel from the steel rack inside, and their plan is to to run up and wedge it into the tracks in an attempt to break them. They do so, no effect. It has no effect whatsoever. The treads of this behemoth just chew that half-inch piece of round stock up like, like a cracker, like nothing. I have to interrupt you with the breaking news. I googled something okay. just now. Guess okay. what? You know, you were saying you wish that uh, that it was a caterpillar, right? Yes. So there is a very famous Japanese origami artist who is famous. For his origami butterflies, and his name is Hideo Komatsu. Uh, are you serious? Yeah, I kid you not. So there's a <laughs> so there's a loose connection to Japan. There's a very well, that's about as loose as a connection can possibly be. <laughs> They're related. They're related. That is that is a strong relation, as per my understanding of relational things. Also, Komatsu means tiny pine tree. So that's really that that's a dead end there. Yeah. <laughs> now uh Cody abandons the thirty eight revolver. He realizes this is just not doing anything. 
And it's when he throws it to the side and, real, and tries to climb. Oh, I forgot to mention, the tank also has, even when it was a bulldozer, it had a single shank ripper on the back of it. Oh, Not yeah, only does hook. it have the giant scoop, but the ripper, which is used to, to just p- pull up rock and roots and anything in the ground. Uh, Cody, however, tries to climb this single shank ripper that's mounted to the back of the of the of the tank, but no luck because it's slippery as hell and like trying to climb on top of a thirteen foot tall, eighteen foot long, ninety seven thousand nine hundred seven pound honey baked ham. <laughs> um, it's just can't get a grip on the thing. It's like slippery. He's <laughs> did somebody jerk off all over this thing before they drove it? What is going on here? But he says, I don't know what happened. This does not taste like ham. <laughs> I couldn't get a grip of nothing. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's about this time that Officer Jim Cracker arrives, which is fitting considering this town is primarily white. He pulls up in his cruiser, grabs a shotgun, runs up to it, and tells the tank to stop. Dozer, I command you, stop, Dozer, in the name of God Almighty. <laughs> the tank doesn't listen. Uh, I just love that idea. There's a picture of him yelling at it at the dozer of Officer Kraken, Cracker, just standing there with a shotgun, literally yelling at a giant reinforced armored dozer, like "Stop, dozer!" Like that scene from I think it wasn't it Gold Member, where the guy's like, "No!" and the steamroller's <laughs> yeah. coming at him at like zero <laughs> miles an hour. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So Jim Cracker, old Cracker standing there yelling at the dozer, trying to get it to stop, but the dozer ain't listening. And it's about this time that Cody Dochef returns. And this time, Cody's in a huge front-end loader. Uh, <laughs> he went and got a huge front-end loader. <laughs> Suddenly, this turns into a Transformer movie. <laughs> that's That's almost what this is for a minute, yes. Because he just plows the side of this dozer with this front-end loader. And tries to lift him, and there's pictures of this too. And uh, but the dozer just kind of towers over this front end loader. And whenever he tries, whenever Cody tries to lift, he's trying to flip it. When he tries to lift it up, the 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 back wheels of the front end loader he's in just come up off the ground. It has it doesn't even. <laughs> and I'm still honestly, uh, I'm not even sure that Marv is even aware that people are trying to stop him at the, at this point. I don't I don't think. <laughs> He, he hasn't figured it out yet. <laughs> no. He's like, is it raining out there? Hmm, might be rain. Is that hail? Somebody throwing pebbles? <laughs> so Cody backs up, takes another plunge, hits him too hard the second time. They said the back wheels of this thing came four feet off the ground of the front end loader <laughs> that Cody used whenever he hit him. And unfortunately, when Cody hits him the second time, his head also hits the windshield of the front end loader, and it knocks Cody out cold. He's asleep. <laughs> Crap. So Cody's knocked himself out. He's snoring in the in the cab of this front end loader. Uh, that second hit made Marv aware that something was trying to stop him. He probably thought a mosquito had flown into the side of his <laughs> into his tank or something. And that's yeah. when he he whips he whips around and fires eight rounds from the fifty cal into the bucket. Now. <laughs> A fifty caliber sniper rifle going off eleven feet from your head probably is what woke Cody up, and that's possibly the worst wake up call that anybody could ever have in history. Because you know how you like wake up and you're like, oh, 
Where am I? Oh, yeah, I'm in my room. Oh, I left the office on again. I love Michael Scott. <laughs> you know that peaceful wake? Now, now imagine this. Oh, where am I again? Oh, my God, there's a tank. It's firing a 50 cal rifle at me. What is happening? It's at this point that Cody kind of, he's like, ah, I think I'm good here. I'm done. He climbs, he climbs off, getting shot at from a, with a 50 cal. From a tank is where Cody calls it Dunsies. He climbs off the front loader and just kind of backs away. He's like, I'll let the cops take care of this. Now, this is around the time that officers start completely surrounding the area. Cracker, old Cracker transitions to his M4, which is equally useless, useless against the composite armor that Marv Meyer has painstakingly put together on this tank. That's also when Cody decides, Cody just comes up with this idea in his head, this thing doesn't have anybody inside it. It's being operated from a remote control. And Marv is somewhere on the hills around the outside of town operating it from the hills. Like a villain from a Michael Bay movie. He tells the cops, Hemeyer is on it. Hemeyer, it's, it's Marv Hemeyer, I know it, and he has to be on the hill. The cops are like, yeah, it's probably Marv Hemeyer, but that other part just kind of seems far-fetched. I don't, I don't know about that. You bonked that. your head. Yeah. Go over there somewhere, Cody. You're 87. What are you What are you even doing here? He is really old, Cody is, by the way. So Officer Rich Garner, who is the police department's designated marksman, pulls up, skirts the west side, and crouches behind a concrete barrier. Officer Garner hears destruction and roaring and madness, but he still couldn't see anything. And it's around that time that Marv is finished with the concrete factory or the concrete business there, and he pulls around, and Officer Garner gets a good, solid look at this monstrosity for the first time, and he says that it was absolutely horrifying. It was just like the devil had come to Granby. (laughs) (laughs) You know what it makes me think of? Did you ever play that game Twisted Metal? Oh, yeah. You remember Minion from Twisted Metal? Uh Uh-huh. Yes. That's what it reminds me of. Yeah, creepy. Minion from Twisted Metal. Yeah, this just because it was a it was a flat black, which is way creepier than a shiny glossy black, right? Yeah. Just this big, and then the sound of those tank treads. You know how they sound. It's a scary, intimidating sound. So the order is given to all officers at this point that they see this this work of the devil to start firing, just start lighting it up. No effect. It has no effect whatsoever. Nothing. They might as well. Except for all the ricochets. Jeez, could you imagine how many bullets were flying all over town, you know, ricocheting from this yeah. thing? Yeah. And they might as well just be throwing packing peanuts at it. Like, that's, <laughs> that's the effect it's having. <laughs> exactly. Marv, at this point, begins returning fire with the FNFNC. And uh, fortunately, no officers were harmed. No officers were hurt. Uh, he also runs over a concrete barrier that had three state troopers behind it. They dived out of the way just in time. And that's when Marv decides he's done with the concrete business. It's time to move on to his next target. He cuts through the parking lot and on his way out runs over Officer Trainer's unmarked 2000 Ford Expedition in the process and just flattens it and then proceeds through backyards and hangs a left onto West Agate Avenue. At this point, Officer Glenn Trainer, who was the owner of the expedition that Marv has just flattened, 
finds a way somehow to climb up on top of the dozer. Now, I, I imagine he jumped on it from some something else. That's about the only way I think you could have got onto it. It seems like almost impossible to be able to climb it from the sides. Uh, but somehow he gets on top of it, and Officer Glenn Trainer goes on a ride for a while. He is riding this thing like a bucking bull on the top. Uh, he's up there. He's 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 quickly looking around trying to find an entry point. There's there's, there's got to be a way inside. But Marv has left no handle on the outside, and obvious and also it's bolted shut from the inside. They are not getting into this thing. Uh, he, there's nothing. To, so there's nothing. And then Officer Trainer sees an air conditioning fan opening. He begins firing frantically into it with his service nine millimeter. Nothing happens. And uh, now he's just kind of along for the ride, and he's just literally throwing his hands up, looking at everybody else like, I'm just kind of stuck up here now, I guess, like, because there's no way in. I feel like there's a joke brewing about Officer Trainer jumping on top of the big, black, greasy thing looking for an entry point, but I can't quite make it land, so I'm just going to leave that there. Okay, well, so we'll table that for now, and then when you come up with something, let me know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at one point, uh, another officer shows up with flashbang, fat flashbang grenades, and they start tossing them up to Trainer, and Trainer just starts dumping them down holes and exhaust fan, like whatever he can find, just something. Uh, whenever they go off, there's a bunch of dust that throws up, but no effect, no effect whatsoever. It does nothing. So officer Trainer's officer Trainer's going for a ride. Marv keeps going straight. Turns up to. Goes up to Mountain Parks Electric. He destroys one side of Mountain Parks Electric while trainers riding on top. Uh, now you're probably wondering what? Why would he destroy Mountain Parks Electric? And there's a there's a few reasons for that. Uh, one was a fellow named Dick Brody worked at Mountain Parks Electric and was also on the town board. So it was kind of a two edged sword for for uh, for Marv. He was he's getting at the place of work for one of these committee members that had fucked him over and. He thought Dick still worked there, even though he didn't. Also, Mountain Parks Electric was one of the biggest employers in Granby. So it was kind of a way to stick it to the man of the town that that wronged him. Yeah. So he destroys Mountain Parks Electric and then goes directly next door to Maple Street Builders. And he destroys that. Maple Street Builders was owned by a fellow named George Davis. who uh, And it was a construction company. And the only thing that George did to... To Marv was refused to sign a petition that Marv had been passing around to block construction on the concrete plant. That was his <laughs> wrongdoing. <laughs> this guy's crazy. Yeah, just in case you're wondering if Marv was a, a douche canoe. Um, it's at this point, while Marv is destroying Maple Street Builders, that a reverse 911 call is sent out for everybody, for whatever reason, to shelter in place, which seems like maybe the worst idea. (laughs) It should have been run. Just run. Hey, there's a tank destroying all the buildings in town. Go in your building and lock it up. Because if your door's locked, the tank just keeps on moving. It doesn't like... (laughs) It's like when you're trick-or-treating and there's no light on. Up next house. Oh, nobody's here. Uh, so Marv destroys Maple Street Builders and then pulls out onto West Agate Avenue and hangs a left onto Mesa Street and then swings a ride onto East Jasper Avenue. A hundred feet, a, a few hundred feet down East Jasper Avenue, he comes upon the city hall and the library. 
Is um, it's about is an agate? Is that like an agate? Agate, agate, agate. What is an agate? Well, I know that an agate is a type of rock or precious mineral, but I don't know. Maybe agate is like that. Maybe kind of sounds is, like a slur. It's all. It almost sounds the way you're saying it. Almost sounds like a slur. Like yeah. you're one letter away from really offending a lot of people. I think we just stick with your agate. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, let's stay okay. away from anything that sounds like agate. Yeah, exactly. That's, it's getting dangerously close there. That's. I see you did that intentionally. Then okay, moving forward with agate. But as as Marv is pulling up onto the lawn of City Hall and Library, that's when Trainer is like, he's probably got cement in his hair, his forehead's probably bleeding. He's probably missing he's teeth from riding this thing. Well, soaked with grease or KY or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he might be unconscious. I don't even know if he rolled off. He may his body may have just rolled off of the thing. But this is when uh, this is when uh, Officer Trainer. Decides to bail. He's like, I'm Dunsies. I'm out. He just jumps off the top of it and barrel rolls onto the onto the lawn of, of City Hall. And then uh, he Mar pulls around back and starts leveling City Hall. My he goodness. runs over us. Yeah, and he brings City Hall almost completely down. Just just levels it. Um, he also destroys the library. Because the library is attached to City Hall, and then he goes next door and destroys the police station. Oh, it's so, so crazy, this story. Now, thank God in all of this, nobody was killed. But honestly, if you get run over by a bulldozer, the max speed of this thing, without all this additional weight of armor, concrete, plating, is eight miles per hour. So if you're in the road and you get run over by a bulldozer that's probably realistically running four to five miles an hour, you fucking deserved it, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> you had that coming. I believe my grandma's hover round could beat that. Her her rascal could go faster than that. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen Hawking, without his wheelchair, could outrun this dozer. <laughs> Helen Keller could outrun this dozer. Superman, post-horse riding accident, could outfly this dozer. Peter Dinklage, ah, he'd probably get crushed. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, so if, you, so if he had killed anybody, it's kind of like, ah, that's tragic, but fuck you. A little bit, you know. It's like people that get hit by trains. I've never understood that. Like, you know where the train is going to be. It's like, and you can hear it across town. It's not like it's, like, yeah. creeping up on you. The train is the only thing that doesn't swerve and hit somebody. It's like, it shows you. Look, I'm going to be right there at some point. So just need to make sure that you're not there when I'm there at the and same even time. Even if you're there, you'll hear me coming a mile away. So Just don't be in that place. You can literally be three foot to one side or the other, but just don't be in that one. I have no, I have no sympathy for people that get hit by trains. Okay, where were we? So after so after Marv has finished leveling uh, City Hall and the library, he pulls back onto East Jasper Avenue and turns right onto First Street. And just a couple hundred feet down First Street, 
He comes up to Liberty Savings Bank on the left, and it's at the corner of First and East Agate. Agate. It's <laughs> on the corner of East Agate <laughs> Avenue. And he destroys the front of Liberty Savings Bank. Now, their, his, his beef with Liberty Savings Bank was also pretty minor. They had, uh, they had turned down a check that he had written them for the fines that he was having to pay for operating his business without being connected to the sewer lines. And uh, he wrote it to the cowards and liars department. And they were <laughs> like, well, yeah, that's fine. But you wrote the, the, the uh, amount wrong. So you have to come back up here and rewrite it. And that was all they did to him. <laughs> That's what they did to him. Gosh. <laughs> this is amazing. So he destroys the front end of Liberty Savings Bank, pulls back onto East Agate Avenue. <laughs> and about a half mile down East Agate Avenue, he comes up on Sky High News on the right. And that's where our, our friend Patrick Brower... Uh, the guy that we've had come in a few times uh, during this episode, the guy that I interviewed, that's where he was He was waiting. Uh, he was the managing editor and publisher of the Granby newspapers and was actually inside the building looking out onto the road at the dozer as it approached. Uh, he, he, he initially thought it was just going to pass right on by. Maybe his, maybe his infractions on Marv Hemeyer weren't, weren't severe enough, but we have already learned that no infraction on Marv Hemeyer is is not severe enough for him to level everything in your life. Like, just <laughs> and as we mentioned earlier, Patrick Brower had had fucked him over by giving him an ad for free in the newspaper and promoting his business, and then it fucked him over two years later by borrowing his truck and paying for it, and then giving him eight hundred dollars when Marv scammed him out of that money. So Marv is like, fuck Patrick Brower, and he just turns, pivots right there in the middle of the road, and drives right through the front of Sky High News. As Marv is driving, driving through the front of Sky High News, Patrick is literally running out the back. And he levels Sky High News. Wow. Now, uh, a lot of people say, you know, Marv never hurt nobody. A lot of these people that worship this dude, Marv never hurt nobody. That's true. He didn't hurt anybody physically. Uh, and he only destroyed property of of people that had wrong, wronged him. Now, obviously, we have learned so far that that's not necessarily the case. Uh, this guy is a psycho, and a lot of these people did nothing, absolutely nothing, to him. Uh, you know, but, if if he were if if he were qualified to only destroy buildings of people that had wronged him. He would have only been able to destroy his own building because he's literally the only one that got in his own way yeah. in this whole town. <laughs> yeah, yeah Marv's dick was so big that it, like, impeded his judgment on stuff. <laughs> like, you know, and it's only by chance that he didn't kill anybody because he laid out a lot of rounds from – we, we have to at least admit that Marv had big old balls. Yes. Like this this is this is big dick energy building a, a an army tank building a tank and leveling a town and then killing yourself that's biggest dick energy. He probably had to make a second seat in the cab of this <laughs> tank for his penis. Um <laughs> he's he's basically 
materialized what we've all wished we could do when we're driving down the road and, you know, some stupid poop head cuts us off and you just in your head you're like i would blow your car up if i could i would pop your tires oh for sure for sure he's living his dream right he's living like a childhood dream right now yeah now but everybody says he never damaged any property that wasn't the property of somebody as marv is pulling out of the back he pulls he goes through completely through the front all the way through sky high news into the back and as he's pulling back out onto the road, he runs over a large number of personal vehicles for people that just lived in the apartments next door and had didn't even know Marv. Like, he just <laughs> destroyed their vehicles almost intentionally. This is all on video. Like, he had a way that he could have driven there where he did, but he just runs over these people's vehicles. <laughs> so he pulls out onto East Agate Avenue and goes down the road about a half mile then turns left onto 6th Street, and then makes an immediate right onto a small side road. And this is where you will find the Thompson house. Now, the Thompson brothers, as we mentioned, Mark has a long beef with them. And unfortunately, their 82-year-old mother lives in this little bitty house. Marv drives through the front of it and literally flattens. It's a small house, flattens the entire house to the ground, where she had previously been asleep just 25 minutes earlier. Fortunately, the brothers had an idea that Marv was going to head there. They called her ahead of time. She was able to get out. That's when Marv goes next door after leveling the house and destroys the Thompson brothers' storage. Uh, It was like a storage place for their excavation company. He flips over trailers, destroys all their buildings, and also destroys XL Energy, which was a business that was leasing the the space from the Thompson brothers. Marv basically just has a field day in this little area here, all owned by the Thompson brothers, destroys everything. Wow. That's amazing. I could just see him inside of there with like a list with little check boxes next to it. He's like, Thompson House, check. Thompson Brothers storage, check. Library, check. No more library, late fees. Now, he actually did have a list like that. A legitimate list like that. Did he have a bunch of late fees at the library? Is that why he took that down? Uh, I think the library was just like, I bet this thing would be cool to drive through like a bunch of books. Yeah. Like, fuck books. Right? <laughs> <laughs> just like, yeah. fuck books, man. So... <laughs> It's around this time while, Mar- while while Marv is having a field day at the at the Thompsons' property, uh, the chief of the Kremlin Police Department uh, pulls up and yells at the de- designated marksman for the uh, Granby Police Department, Rich Garner, and says, "Hey, I got a surprise for you, Rich." Now, apparently, this cop from Kremlin was like Bert Gummer from the Tremors franchise. I don't know if <laughs> you know Bert. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. Because Garner looks in the back seat, and he's got a fifty caliber rifle. Wow. Uh, Garner picks it up and starts unloading it on this tank, which is, this is by far the largest caliber round that has hit the tank so far. No effect. Now, now to, to, to put that into perspective, the Barrett fifty cal, or most fifty caliber rifles, or your Lapua's, those those rounds are intended to stop the engine block of a car or, they a, are, or a truck. 
Yes, they are anti-equipment rounds. They're not yes. for personnel. Now, the American forces have approved them for anti-personnel uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq, but their intended use is against vehicles. Yes. Uh, yeah, they are meant to travel. And a fifty caliber round uh, can travel through an engine block and out the other side. At like a mile away. Yes. Yeah. At a it's miles. Nuts. Yes. It's crazy. This tank, however, at almost point blank range, <laughs> stopped it in its tracks. It literally just fell to the ground. Like, this is really a, a, a an engineering marvel, this, this tank is. The fact that this guy did this in his garage is, yeah. is, is amazing. It's miraculous. So... Marv pulls out from the Thompson Brothers property and pulls out, turns left onto East Agate Court and heads down about a quarter of a mile and stops at Independent Gas. Now, you're probably wondering, what beef does uh, Independent Gas have? You know, and we'll go into that for a second, but he he doesn't run these tanks over. He's smarter than that. These are huge propane tanks. We're talking 30, 40 feet long. He, uh, he he backs that ass up, and he, he starts angling the dozer to where he can he can hit one of these propane tanks with that with the incendiary rounds from that 50 cal off the back. Uh, fortunately, thank God, the the armor that was on that uh, single shank ripper was sitting up too high, and his incendiary rounds were bouncing off his own armor. He was just shooting his own armor. Um, and that I think that you can argue about God, and I think that maybe that was the first first uh, time step God from showed God that, that God <laughs> had anything to do with this at all, because right up the hill from these propane tanks was a nursing home. Oh my goodness, yeah. Oh gosh, you'd have a lot of geriatric nuggets if that propane. This tank is another part of the story that a lot of people that that worship this guy choose to not think about. You know. It's just convenient yes. for them. Right. A uh, lot of innocent people would have died had he accomplished here what he was trying to do. Yeah, that's 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 crazy. Now, what beef could Marv have possibly had with independent gas? Uh I'll tell you what, for that for that, let's go to our friend Patrick Brower. The the Excel Energy building is actually a building that was leased from the Thompsons. Thompson family by XL Energy. So all that property there was owned by the Thompsons, but they leased it to XL Energy. So, you know, he was really attacking property owned by the Thompson family. Okay, okay, okay. That make and as far as I, I know he, he backed up there at one point and tried to shoot the the uh the propane tanks with the fifty cal. Did he have a problem with independent gas company, or was that just another way to cause more damage? Was that something personal, or just him trying to get the most bang for... Well, I think it's him trying to get the most bang for his buck, mainly. But not coincidentally, and this didn't make it in the book or in the movie, but uh, um, I knew Joe, the guy that ran independent propane, you know, in the 90s. Uh And I asked him if he had ever had any problems with Marv. And he said, yes, actually, he did. Um, several times, Marv complained on his bill about being charged for uh, what they call a chain-up fee because where Marv's house was located in Grand Lake, 
to get propane pumped into his propane tank, the truck had to go up a kind of a steep hill that was kind of dangerous. Uh-huh. You know, steep driveway. So the guy had to chain up to do it, and uh, they charge you extra for that. And so Marv bitched at him about the chain-up fee. And that's he said, that's the only thing I can think of, he told me, that was the only thing he could think of that might have contributed to him. It really kind of sounds like it didn't take much to end up on Marv's, you know, shit list. Uh, Uh, Basically, if you disagreed with him over money in any way, that was it. He ended up aiding your guts. Uh, You're just kind of... examples of that. When you read the book, you'll see, but there's example after example of, you know, I got in a run-in with him over money. So, you know, uh, it's just time after time after time. It's always, you know, one guy, you know, wanted his money back because he didn't like the way the guy did. Marv fixed his muffler. And Marv said, you can take me all the way to court. I'll sue you to high heaven. You know, he just kind of lost it right away. Which it's makes sense because it also kind of seems like a big motivating factor for him. And all of this was was greed to a certain extent. Yeah, he imagined that uh, that uh, he had lost a fortune because of uh, the batch plan in, in the town. And I have to tell you, that is so farcical on its face that it's he could have walked out of Grand County with a million bucks in his pocket when he only paid fifty thousand for the. Yeah, I mean. He, <laughs> Really, I mean, he he made out, but he did. You know, he had to have an excuse to uh, do this extreme thing. All right. Well, thank you there, Patrick. Uh, as you, as he, as he said, Marv's issues with the independent gas company were pretty minor as well. Uh, the guy had a chain up fee to get to his house, as he did with probably a thousand other people. You know. Uh, and uh, I should probably clear up what a chain-up fee is. Uh, this is Colorado. It's snowy probably mo- a lot of the year, you know. And a chain-up fee is, means that his trucks, in order to get to Marv's residence, had to put chains on the tires, which is probably time-consuming, and that's the chain-up fee. We had to chain up to get to your residence. Mm, okay. Now, it's around the time that Marv is taking shots at these huge propane tanks with a fifty caliber rifle using incendiary rounds that the police call... For the National Guard, which wow. say what you will about Marv Hemeyer, but that's a badass. That is a whenever <laughs> your attack, your one man attack is requiring the military. <laughs> can you think of it? Can you think of another time where that was I the can't. case? I cannot. I, I tried. I, can't. I cannot think of another time. Yeah, I mean, even not the only thing Waco? I think that maybe comes even remotely close, and it's not, it's not close at all. Is those uh, was it two or three gentlemen at some point that it was maybe in California that robbed a bank and they had heavily yeah. armored vests yeah. and military weapons. I can't, but I can't remember how many there were. I can't remember the details, but I remember there was a handful of them. And yeah, and they had armor piercing rounds, uh, fully automatic. Yeah, they did some damage, but yeah, no, they they got taken out. They didn't quickly have the National Guard. Yeah, quite quite efficiently. Uh, this is one yeah. man, and he's wearing a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't say it any better. That is exactly the, the sum of it all right there. One man in a Hawaiian shirt, re- it required, they were calling for the military 
to stop this man. <laughs> could you imagine that morning over breakfast if you had a person that could read the future and they go, hey, I guess what's going to happen today? So uh, we're going to have to call the National Guard over one guy in a, in a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> You'd be like, shut up. Because he's in a bulldozer. <laughs> like, shut up. <laughs> shut up, Edgar. Shut You're up, so full Edgar. of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe you got the lotto numbers right, Edgar, but this one, you're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> uh, like, we just need to, as, a, as, a, as much of a shitty human being as Marvin Heumeyer is, you have to respect him. You have to, like, this That's is like intense. a... It, it is... What he accomplished here is incredible. It's incredibly horrible, but it is incredible nonetheless. The other thing that's interesting, I think really interesting about it is that so many other people that do terrible things, like the FBI or the CIA, they, they could be tipped off now. Because if you go and try to buy a, an abundance of fertilizer and nails and stuff, you know, it, it, fla- it gets flagged. This guy, none of what he bought would have flagged anywhere. You know, you can still ex- buy everything that he used to do this. You can still buy today and yeah. not end up on any list of any kind whatsoever, aside from maybe the, the 50 cal. Yeah, well, even the 50 cal. I mean, you can buy one. And in Kentucky, I, I, I can go down to Taco Bell and buy one of them from some guy out of the back of a van exactly. right now. There's a there's a gun shop right down the road from here that has Barrett's on the wall. I mean, there's there's no his solution was so homegrown. It's nuts. If Marvin Hemeyer was my fam was my father, I would have this really love hate relationship with him. And whenever I was dating a girl, and they're like, "Who's your dad?" I was like, "Well, who's Marvin Hemeyer?" And she's like, "Well, what do you think?" I was like, "Well, he was a fucking asshole, but God, he was a badass." Like, <laughs> I would be closet proud. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. It seems like you would never be able to tell a story about him without the phrase blaze of glory coming out. He left a trail of destruction. He brought an entire town to its knees. That's amazing. In a Hawaiian shirt. In a Hawaiian so Marv shirt. takes shots at these at these propane tanks. He hits his own armor. Thank God. The only act of God in this entire story. Mm. And and then gives up on that after a few shots. Uh, and then starts backtracking down East Agate Avenue. Now, at the end of East Agate, uh, or East Agate Court, I'm sorry. At the end of East Agate Court, the town has pulled up a road scraper at the end of it to try to block his way out. Because he's kind of blocked in down here in this place that he's in. Now, a road scraper weighs 32,357 pounds. Wow. Marv pushes out of the way like it's made out of feathers. <laughs> I mean... Like, like it, the dozer isn't even aware the scraper is there. It just swats it out of the way. It's not even a bitch slap. It's just like a <laughs> move. Yeah. He pushes that out of the way like a feather, pulls back onto East Agate Avenue, and starts making his way down to Gamble's Hardware and Appliance. Now, right before hitting Gamble's, uh, a billow of smoke starts coming out of the engine compartment, out from underneath the armor. 
and it appears that Marv has blown the radiator and is quickly losing coolant. One can assume that it was probably because of the additional weight of all this armor and concrete pushing that uh, that road scraper probably didn't help, and not to mention the fact that he's been running it pedal to the metal uh, almost two hours at this point. He's really rode this thing hard, like, and it's losing power quickly. White smoke is billowing out. Despite this, Marv starts destroying Gamble's hardware and appliance. Now, Marv's issue with Gamble's was because a man named Casey Farrell was the owner of Gamble's hardware and appliance and was also on the board of trustees when the decisions were made about the batch plant and Casey owned Gamble's. So that's the connection there. That's why he was on the hit list. Now, Marv is successful in completely tearing out the front end of the store and he starts methodically what Marv, the way Marv would destroy these buildings is actually pretty intelligent. He wouldn't just back, like drive in front, then back out, then drive in. He would find a wall and then drive down the wall long ways. And that's exactly what he was doing to Gamble's appliance. However, what Marv, and this had worked with every building so far, but what Marv wasn't aware of was that Gamble's in the very back had a basement. That basement would be Marv's undoing. That would be what brings this rampage to an end because Marv gets to the end of this building. He's tearing down this wall and the right side of the tracks drops down into this basement and the dozer is essentially teeter-tottering now and unable to do anything. About this time, the engine also maybe blows. I don't know. It's it's burning up and it cuts off. And for the first time in Granby, we have a moment of silence. The cops start stacking a radio transmission comes in. Get ready for a gunfight. Silence. 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 The dozer smokes and screeches, lurches, and lilts. Inside, Hemeyer does the mashed potato with the pedals, yanks violently at the controls, but it is all just an expression of frustration. He is a child reduced to exhausted sobs in the death throes of a tantrum. Well, Marv, guess that'll about do it for today, then. Outside of the killdozer's near-impenetrable cockpit, sirens wail, air buffets under helicopter blade, and men shout at one another, coordinating, preparing for a firefight. But it's over. He's spent. Good enough. The same peace that had washed over him in the hot tub back when this whole insane plan had hatched slowly returns. Hatched. It's funny how that works. If the mind becomes agitated enough, it eventually yields just a little, provides release, like the cracking of an outgrown shell, and what crawls out more often than not is the solution. For men like Marvin Hemeyer, those solutions are never simple. They are massive, all-encompassing, so intense and clear and bold that to the receiver of such ideas, the origin cannot be conceived to have come from anywhere else but the heavens. Mental illness, narcissism, the result of living in your head with too many thoughts, perhaps does lead to God. If God lives inside each of us, maybe we can hatch the voice from within if we spend enough time obsessing over our own circumstances. Either way, what a fucking mess. 
What a message that has been delivered and received loud and clear there, Marv. You actually may have a point here, big guy. Now come on out and let's see if we can't work this through. But the piece is back as the solution is clear. Marv reaches for his cigarettes and slowly performs the old working man's ritual of a job well done. He smokes slowly, meditating between draws, calculating the damage. For all he knows, there are dead innocents back there, children stuck in the rubble he turned the library into. But we'll never know if that was any of his concern. Marv Hemeyer puts out his cigarette, picks up his revolver, and turns out the lights. Jack has a way of w- way with words, doesn't he, Op? Yeah, Jack is wayward. I mean... So as he mentioned, Marv comes to a stop. He's satisfied with the work he's done. Kills the machine. Lots of cigarette. Reflects for a moment. And then takes one of the two pistols that he also has in the cab with him, the three fifty seven Magnum. Puts the barrel to the roof of his mouth. And paints the inside of that dozer with his brain matter kills himself at 4.11 p.m. the gunshot is heard from inside the dozer 4.11 p.m. the the attack lasted in total 2 hours and 7 minutes deputies begin crawling up on top of the dozer to try to find a, a way in try to find entry they have no luck SWAT teams are called in to breach the hull they use 3 separate explosive charges to try to get in Charges so powerful that they rattle windows up to a mile away. No luck. It doesn't Jeez. even. It just. All it does is makes a, a a colored spot on the side of it. It doesn't even <laughs> dent it. Finally, they bring in a specialized cutting torch and they have to cut the top. They have to go in through the AC unit and cut a hole with a specialized cutting torch. And entry is gained into Marv's uh, tomb. At 6 a.m. in the morning on June 5th, the next day. It, it took them 10 hours to cut into it this It took them thing. 10 hours to get into it. Oh, my gosh. That's after it had completely just flecked, flicked off three explosive charges like a fly. Mm. Like, that's how impressive this machine was. I cannot elaborate enough how impressive this machine was that he, that he built. Marv is found dead, obviously... Inside, by self-inflicted gunshot wound by 357, his body had to be lifted out with a crane through that small hole. And despite the name Killdozer, the only person Marv ever killed was himself. Not long after that, he was cremated. His friends, his snowmobile friends, drove his ashes up to the top of a mountain there in Granby and, and released his ashes so that Marv could look down on the town that he fucking hated one more time before probably being carted off to hell. This was obviously a national news story. This was a huge story at the time. But on June 5th, 2004, the day after the rampage, Ronald Reagan passes away. And Ronald Reagan's story completely drowns out any coverage of Killdozer and his rampage. The dozer was hauled off and meticulously cut into pieces, piece by piece by piece, so that nobody could get a hold of any of it and make their own Marv Meyer shrine that is not speculation. That is why they did it. And it was shipped to several different scrapyards so that it was no no piece of this was attainable. 
It was so the dozer was scrapped piece by piece by piece, cut up into little bitty pieces. Now, there's so much we don't get into politics here on true crime, Kent. I, I, I try to avoid it at all costs. It's hard not to with this case because Marv has become somewhat of a right wing hero to a lot of hard righties. A lot of those uh, those anti-government fellas, you know the top op. Yeah, tidy tidies. And that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. That's that's a very unfortunate thing that that conservatives do. And and to be fair, I've mentioned that uh, I'll say that the left left wing people, much like liberals do, some liberals, not all liberals, just like not all conservatives worship this guy, not all liberals worship this guy. Uh, liberals much do the same thing with Che Guevara. Uh, who was a racist homophobe, uh, who has quotes like, uh, we're going to do for blacks exactly what blacks did for the revolution, and by that I mean nothing. Dang. Uh, During his first journey through Latin America, he wrote that Africans had maintained their racial purity because of their lack of affinity and bathing, and an ironic statement given his notoriously poor personal hygiene. He also said the black is indolent, which means lazy, and a dreamer, spending his meager wage on frivolity, which is fun, or drink. Guevara also referred to Mexicans as a band of illiterate Indians, and Guevara was a notorious homophobe who campaigned to have gay people placed in prison when they were interned and they were treated worse than the rest of the prisoners. According to one inmate, gays were treated like beasts, and they were the last to come out for meals. If a gay prisoner committed even the slightest infraction, he was beaten mercilessly, uh, and Guevara referred to homosexuals as scum. So it seems, you know, both right-wing and left-wing um, political ideologies each have their own pieces of shit to worship. Uh, and this, this piece of shit, Marv Meyer, just so happens to be the conservative the conservative uh, hero of the hard righties. And I would say Che Guevara is the hero of the left. And uh, I live on a college campus, and I see these college – these college frat boys and sorority girls walking around with that Che Guevara head on their shirt. And I always laugh to myself because they're the same people that would flow a, uh, fly a Black Lives Matter flag in front of their, in front of their house, stickers on their vehicles when Guevara was open about hating black people, which is incredibly ironic to me. So I think in both of these cases with, with the two individuals you've mentioned here, it's, there are there are two individuals that really defy history in a way because as we've outlined here for a couple hours now the detail backing the history of Marvin Emeyer does not a hero denote you know he is not a hero all this all of the detail of this he story, is not a hero this was a very flawed petty man baby Marvin Emeyer was. But it is then placed up against this massive icon that he's created with the killdozer. Yes. And there's a slice of society that is willing to ignore all of the facts, all of the history, because killdozer is such a charismatic icon, right? I mean, just yeah. having killdozer on your shirt would be like having Che Guevara in this case, where Che Guevara, yes. his, his history does not a hero denote. That's sort of like saying, you know, that's sort of like in this day and age, uh, we admiring Hitler because he was a good painter. <laughs> You know, it's like yeah, you yeah. you can ignore all the history on an individual, but it shouldn't 
be done in a lot of cases. <laughs> yes, Marv has become a, an idol to the to the conservative boogaloo boys, those dipshits that also ironically enjoy uh, Hawaiian t-shirts, Hawaiian button-up t-shirts. Um, much like, you know, that's that's the reason, I just want to elaborate, that's the reason that I threw the Che Guevara counteroffer in there to, to keep it fair. You know, and anytime that I bring up politics in this show, I am going to do that. Uh, just just to keep it fair. Like if I take a shot at, at somebody on the right, I'm going to take a shot at the left just because um, there's nothing more divisive right now than politics. So, Well, OK. And and before when you were reading all that, I was like, that's a lot of detail about Che Guevara. Is this necessary? But but if you would have just said Marvin, Marvin Hemeyer is the Che Guevara of conservatives, it would have been lost on a lot of people without that be- yes. the detail. So I, yes. I, get, I get what you did. It, we, no matter the political party, there are people on on the extremes of both sides that choose to idolize these these horrible human beings and completely ignore the facts and the truth in their stories. It's interesting because we are currently talking to a listenership who is intimately aware and familiar with what we're talking about because many a serial killer are idolized. And I think even to the people that idolize them, it's a bit of a mystery as to why we idolize them. You know, it's like, why why do people think that Bundy is a celebrity when, you know, he literally had pods of dead women in the forest? You know, it's like, yes, we, we skip a lot of facts to make these people. You're ignoring you're ignoring <laughs> a lot of horrible things. <laughs> Just to just to just to appreciate his fine jawline, and they and conservatives. Not I keep saying liberals, conservatives. It's a very blanket statement. It's not all. It's usually those that fall fall on the on the hard side of both the right and the left that that kind of idolize these two people. I would say the either the fringe of the ideological spectrum or the uninformed. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The fanatical. Sure. Both of them were scum. Amen. And uh, and that 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 is a wrap on Marvin Hemeyer and his and his killdozer. And I and for the first time in this podcast, I want to I want to throw a thank you out uh, to to Michael Yossi, who is a listener and 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 got me in contact with Patrick Brower. Also had a, a good long conversation with Michael, who's an awesome awesome human being, uh, and he's the one that 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 gave me Patrick's number. And then I also want to thank you. I want to give a thank you to Patrick Brower, who uh, who I got to speak with for a long time. You know the guy that that uh, owned the news station there that Marvin Marvin drove through or didn't own it. He worked there, and also had uh, personal dealings with Marvin on multiple occasions. Uh, Patrick is an awesome, another awesome human being, and uh, he wrote the book Killdozer. It's uh, I've got it here and I've got it here at the house. It's 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 a good thick full of information. Fantastic book. And uh, if you want to, if you want to go into more detail about Marvin Hemeyer and his Killdozer, I would say go out and get the book Killdozer by Patrick Brower. You won't, you won't, you won't regret it. Great man, great book. And I would just like to say thank you to Saint Thomas Aquinas, uh, philosopher from 1225 to roughly 1274, just because uh, he's a good guy too. That's all. Can we get off of here, up? Yeah, I'll call you tomorrow. Yeah, you do that. Okay, hugs. What? What? What?